This is Jocko Podcast number 88 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I went into a public house to get a pint of beer. The public guinea up and says, we serve no red coats here. The girls behind the bar, they laughed and giggled fit to die. I outsed into the streets again and to myself says I, oh, it's Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy go away. But it's thank you, Mr. Atkins, when the band begins to play. When the band begins to play, my boys, the band begins to play. Oh, it's thank you, Mr. Atkins, when the band begins to play. I went into a theater as sober as could be. They gave a drunk civilian room, but they hadn't none for me. They sent me to the gallery or round the music halls. But when it comes to fighting, Lord, they shove me in the stalls. For it's Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy wait outside. But it's special train for Atkins when the trooper's on the tide. The troop ship's on the tide, my boys. The troop ship's on the tide. Oh, it's special train for Atkins when the trooper's on the tide. Yes, making maca uniforms that guard you while you sleep is cheaper than them uniforms and their starvation cheap. And hustling drunken soldiers when they're going large a bit is five times better business than parading in full kit. Then it's Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy how's your soul? But it's thin red line of heroes when the drums begin to roll. The drums begin to roll, my boys, the drums begin to roll. Oh, it's thin red line of heroes when the drums begin to roll. We aren't no thin red heroes, nor we aren't no blackguards too. But single men in barracks most remarkable like you and if sometimes our conduct isn't all your fancy paints why single men in barracks don't grow into plaster saints while well, it's Tommy this and Tommy that and Tommy fall behind but it's please walk in the front sir when there's trouble in the wind when there's trouble in the wind, my boys, there's trouble in the wind. Oh, it's please walk to the front, sir, when there's trouble in the wind. You talk of better food for us and schools and fires and all. We'll rate for extra rations if you treat us rational. Don't mess about the cookroom slops, but prove it to our face. The widow's uniform is not the soldier's man's disgrace. For it's Tommy this and Tommy that and chuck him out the brute. But it's savior of his country when the guns begin to shoot. And it's Tommy this and Tommy that and anything you please. And Tommy ain't a bloomin' fool. You bet that Tommy sees. And that is a, another poem from Kipling. It's actually one of my favorites from Kipling. And and 
you can follow it and you can go back and read through it look it up online and it's it's explaining how you know the soldier doesn't get any respect during peacetime but when it's time to fight when the troop ship is on the tide then it's Tommy which is slang for the British soldier then it's Tommy to the front of the line but the point that I wanted to focus on is is a line in the poem where it says and if sometimes our conduct isn't all your fancy paints why single men in barracks don't grow into plaster saints and what that means is that soldiers and Marines and sailors and those men that go out into harm's way voluntarily they're not always Boy Scouts mm. They're not going to be plaster saints. You know, plaster saint, like you have yeah. the little statue of a saint, a little right. Christian saint. The, the, the soldiers are going to be a little rough around the edges. They might be a little bit rowdy. They might be a little bit brash. They might be a little bit drunk. They might be troublemakers. Now, they're, they're not all like that, obviously. But some of them are. And guess what? Who else is going to go forward? Who, who else is going to go put their life on the line? It's these guys. And, and by the way, when you are raised in a barracks, a single man in a barracks, you're going to find some trouble from time to time. Mm-hmm. And then once you take these young men and you put them into battle, once you subject them to fear and terror and death, can we assume now and expect them to act like saints? Can we somehow expect that their behavior is now going to transition to becoming beyond reproach in the way they carry themselves? I don't think that's a realistic outlook. Now, the book that we're going to look at today is an example of war and it shows once again that war is brutal not just in actions but also in attitude in language and in the way it impacts men both physically and mentally and this book is raw it's graphic it's brutish and it's real and the language that's in it that's offensive, I leave it in. Why? Because war is offensive. And the language used in war is also offensive. And if you don't want to hear offensive language or graphic descriptions or completely politically incorrect statements being made, then don't listen to this podcast. The book is called Excursion in Hell. And it tracks the experience of its author, a guy by the name of Vincent Bramley, who's a young corporal in 3rd Battalion of the British Army's Parachute Regiment, otherwise known as the 3 
Paris. Now, the book starts off kind of with the way the the Falkland Islands st- is starting to escalate, and as it's starting to escalate, they get put on there in England. The three Paris get put onto a cruise ship, a chartered cruise ship mm. called the SS Canabera, and they're sailing south towards the Falkland Islands. And now we, they're starting to get information, they're starting to get in intelligence and starting to get briefed on what's happening because these guys didn't even know where, where the Falkland Islands were. I mean, a lot of them, they didn't know where they were. It's some random island out in the middle of nowhere. They couldn't find it on a map, a lot of them. Yeah. Well, now they're definitely looking at it and they're trying to figure out what's going on there. So they're starting to get some of these briefs. We're going to the book now. Our lectures were in the early afternoon now. The most memorable was by some of the very keen Marines who had been serving in the Falklands at the time of the invasion. The Falkland Islands were in a British, I guess you'd call it a colony, uh, but not a colony. It's a little British, it was owned by the British at the time. Yeah. And the Argentinians invaded it. So here we go. Obviously, listening to first-hand experience was better than listening to some officer lecturing us on his personal beliefs at the time. However, an intelligence officer from way up top gave a graphic account of what the RGs, that's what they call the Argentinians, the RGs, Mm. were up to at the time. The intelligence constantly coming in was essential to all levels. What I remember most about this Lecture was the officer standing proudly in front of us saying the Argentine army is the best and strongest in South America He told us you will be in for a big scrap if it comes to war gents have no qualms about it At the last recorded reports the RG's have about 9,000 men in fortified positions around Stanley the capital But we also have good reports that they are underfed morale is low and they have taken to eating horses and sheep, which they have been stealing from the inhabitants. That's the local people that lived on the Falkland Islands. This tells us that they are very undisciplined and goes to show that conscription is going to be their mistake. So they have some of their soldiers are conscripts, meaning they're forced into the into the army. Oh yeah. Like a draft kind like, of thing. Yes. Yeah. My immediately my immediate feelings were 9,000 fucking men, and we only have two or 3,000. What the fuck is the big brass up to? So what was interesting about this is, well, one of the things that I really, this reminded me of, is these guys have never been to war before. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even mention anyone that has any prior combat experience. Okay. And so this reminds me of when I was on my uh, all my first deployments like you know I talked about being off the coast of Somalia I talked about being uh, off the coast of Rwanda yeah. and that's the position that these guys were in and, and and what our mindset was if I was to go into Rwanda when I was a kid when I was you know however old I was 22 years old never been in combat before yeah. I would be completely different person than if I went in right now yeah. with my you know all the things that we talk about all the time. I mean, I'd be I, I just understand combat. I understand war better I'm 45 years old mm. uh, I've been in combat leadership positions been in firefights. I, I understand these things yeah. it, it, My attitude would be completely different almost completely different mm-hmm. than it would be than it was when I was 20 
22 or 23 years old sitting there fired up with a million rounds and you know it's like Leif talking about I remember you know getting ready to go into Somalia Rwanda I had like hundreds of pounds of gear grenades we were so loaded out we we're too yeah. heavy yeah yeah because we thought we were going to World War three and uh, that's the that's what these guys are like they don't there's they're, they're they just don't they never been to combat mm-hmm and trying I think to be you know, ready for everything. Yeah, they're trying to be ready for everything and and just their attitude and you can see it actually carries through This thing is almost like and this is what he says too. a lot of times It's almost like they're on this giant really hard training exercise. Uh-huh. Uh, obviously it turns very sour at some points and very much much more beyond that but This is what a lot of this reminds me of these guys now some of these guys had been in I guess the combat experience that these guys would have had and I and I should have remembered this I didn't you know what these guys had combat experience they had combat experience from being in Northern Ireland mm. So most of them had done deployments over in Northern Ireland, but I think that was a, a little bit more of a Not it's not it's not the full kind of combat. They're about to get engaged in here mm. so That's what it reminds me of hearing the way they're talking All right, so Back to the book on 3 May the submarine HMS Conqueror sank the Argentinian ship General Belgrano with a loss loss of about 300 lives When this news was first brought to us we were skeptical thinking yeah, okay Once the news was official it wasn't greeted with total enthusiasm in the bar that night most of us were solemn We now knew war was inevitable they have a bar on it's a cruise ship that they're on so they have a bar and they're right. they're drinking and they get some allotment of beers in there That's where they're hanging out, but all of a sudden this is real You know, you don't you, you don't kill 300, you know enemy sailors and think you're not going to go to war yeah. And it comes back back to the book the night of 4 May while we were playing bingo in the bar News came that the HMS Sheffield had been hit by an RG Exocet, which is a type of missile and was sinking the loss of a Harrier jet was also reported the news hit the troops on board like a sledgehammer. Until now, everything we had heard had been in our favor. South Georgia had been retaken, and the RG's submarine patrol boats had all been hit. Even their inland positions had been bombed by the Navy. And now, the Belgrano, which was the ship that they had sunk, sinking the Sheffield was the first of their strike backs. Morale in the bar that night swung from an incredible high to an almost sickening silence. And he talks about this but the waiting these guys are now it's a long cruise down there I think it takes them about three three weeks to get down Back to the book the day after the Sheffield was hit we knew our wait was coming to an end The atmosphere was quiet and a morale booster was now much needed the only thing possible for the task force was revenge The sinking of the Sheffield had hit us as if we had lost a personal friend tension mounted frustration showed in everyone's eyes the fitness drills were now carried out in full kit and pounding the decks in the heat was gutty work So the whole time they've been steaming down there They've been out there running laps on the on the deck of the cruise ship trying to get in shape for what what's coming Back to the book the main info we picked up suggested a possible move on 20 May so now, so they're trying to figure out what's going on they're down these this guy's you know pretty low on the totem pole they're trying to figure out what's going on. They're hearing all these different rumors, and, and now they picked up that maybe they're going to go on 20 May. Back to the book. Our nerves now started. 
The move south was steady and without any real complications. But further south we went, the further we were going in. Somehow, I and many others still didn't quite believe the war was going to happen. We were lost in our own thoughts on many different subjects. Home became secondary now. I thought about the ifs and whens of our arrival in the exclusion zone and of the landings and battles to follow. Home was not in my immediate thoughts. Survival was. Speculation was now rife as to what what the landing procedure would be. We were still very much in the dark as to what was happening. But the next, within the next 24 hours, all the bullshit, rumors, and personal beliefs were corrected by the platoon commander. Gents, he said, it's the green light. So they know they're now going in. And now they're getting into the serious preparations, packing and repacking to make our webbing as comfortable as possible. We began to psych ourselves up for the days ahead. It was nerve-wracking beyond belief, yet morale seemed remarkably high throughout the ship, though the laughing and joking among the lads was partly to cover the fear. Not that anyone thought death was going to hit him. That was for the guy you were talking to. Again, the, the, common, belief, the, the common belief that we hear quite a bit, which is, it's not going to happen to me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I will say this as I say it for all these shows that we do. I'm skipping a bunch of stuff. <laughs> I'm giving you some of the high points, but the the way he lays this out and the tension that he builds, he does an outstanding job uh, getting the tension and capturing it. And I'm I'm going through it pretty quickly, but it's worth reading because, and I think it's worth reading because if you're in one of these situations, especially when you're in charge of guys that have never been to combat before, this is what you gotta. It gives you good lessons about keeping guys informed about preparing them for combat and keeping them with the right mindset going in. Mm. So now they actually transfer from the cruise ship, now they get onto a warship and eventually they end up on a, a landing craft that's that's heading to shore because they're going to war. Mm. Again, I covered that, what, in in six minutes right now? It, it's, it's much more well detailed in the book. But right now they're getting ready to do their landing. Back to the book, the area now looked like an overcrowded tube train. The troops had pushed so close together that you could count the blackheads on your neighbor's face. I sat on my kit observing the order to keep all noise down, no talking. I looked around, I looked around me at the hundreds of cammed faces, so they got cam- camouflage paint on, at hundreds of cammed faces, all with big, wide eyes. Each face told its own story, each, each soldier had his own thoughts about the coming battle and the lads as the lads quietly sat about waiting always waiting the story of all soldiers myself i couldn't help but think that it was still a joke and that we wouldn't be going to shore my stomach was in knots and the nausea was hard to control the nervousness running through me was the worst of all waiting waiting for that fucking green light Doc Murdoch, Doc Murdoch sat next to me, pulling faces like a comedian. Fuck off, Doc, I said. I've got the jitters. We've all got to go somewhere, Vince. Don't worry. The frustration of waiting and all the hassles of the last six weeks disappeared as we watched in stunned silence the battle for Fanning Head to our left. Fanning Head was the RGOP near San Carlos. The SAS had mounted an attack there, 
to allow our landings to go ahead without interference. The tracer rounds and naval bombardment on the tip of the bay brought us abruptly into the real world. Jesus, look at that. It's a fireworks display, shouted a lad at the front of the craft. Shut up and face the coming beach. We hadn't noticed we were moving towards the beach. All heads had been turned to watch the battle. So that's a little wake-up call. They're going in to do their beach landing, and there's a massive firefight going on where the SAS is doing a hit. Now, as they, they, they get on, they do their landing. Their landing is unopposed, and they're starting to patrol uh, movement towards one of their objectives. Here we go. When we passed San Carlos, two gazelle helicopters had just been shot down by some of the fleeing enemy. Word very quickly went around that the crew had been shot in the water while trying to swim ashore. Our anger brought home the reality of war and introduced us to the type of enemy we would be fighting. I would personally felt I personally felt that if we could have caught those responsible, we would have killed them for the cowardly act. So there's some well, cowardly acts, I guess is the is the word used. So the guys are trying to swim to safety and they get shot, the helicopter pilots. They get into a position and they, they, they hold up for a while in a, in a security position, back to the book. Guard sat behind the, the SF gun for two hours on, four off. There's no sleep to be had. What with the cold rain, ponchos flapping all over the place, and everyone restlessly changing positions all the time. It was a great first night. So they're out there. They're freezing. <laughs> it's, uh, that's one thing they weren't really prepared for. They weren't really prepared for this... Uh, cold weather and but that's how they kick off no enemy Mm. contact yet other than what they can see off in the distance Mm. they get gathered up for a little morning meeting back to the book Pete Gray gathered the NCOs around him for a daily brief and informed us of the things we weren't interested in but also informed us that a company and C company had had a blue on blue sometime earlier. Apparently, both companies had patrols out to look for the RGs who had escaped on our landing. One patrol had spotted the other and asked for mortars on their position scene. In turn, the other company asked for artillery on the first company. So a battle between A company and C company, both firing small arms at each other. Within minutes, the operations officer in charge realized the error, error and radioed for a ceasefire. But not before three to four lads had been badly shot up, two of them suffering head wounds. The ops officer was temporarily removed from the task. So, again, we got relatively inexperienced guys. They're out there, and uh, uh, again, Obviously, I highlight that because blue on blue is a real thing. And people don't think it's going to happen. I think Leif was talking about this. If you would have asked someone in TU Bruiser, he said, what are the chances that we're going to have a blue on blue on our deployment? People would have been like 0%. They would have said 0%. Because it was that, it's that taboo. And the fact that you know, there's a blue on blue that we talk about in extreme ownership, but there's blue on blues all the time in yeah. Ramadi. Yeah. And 
this is another example of how easy it is to, to have it happen between two companies in the same battalion. Hmm. Back to the book. Well, lads, bad news, said Pete. The Atlantic conveyor has been sunk. How the fuck did that get hit, asked someone from the rear. You tell me. Pete wasn't a happy man, nor were we, for the ship had been carrying the Chinooks and luxury kit like tents, overboots, and so on. So there was a, a supply ship, well, a ship that had a bunch of supplies on it, including helicopters. And helicopters is what's supposed to transport the Paras around Falkland. That was the plan. Mm. That, that just got sunk. And not only did it get sunk with the helicopters on it, it got sunk with the things like tents yeah. and sleeping bags that's going to allow them to be, you know, operate comfortably in this cold environment. If you don't know where Falkland Islands is, it's down by Antarctica. Back to the book. Some bastard should fall for this, we thought. All that kit on one bloody ship. Bad news of our choppers being sunk hit us sorely, and many of us were still thinking about about it when Pete announced the next info. No choppers. So the big wigs have decided that we start walking ASP, ASAP, like today. Pete gave us a breakdown of what was happening. Two para was on the march to Goose Green. 45 commando were, were to head north to a settlement called Douglas. We, of three para, were to take Teal Inlet. Within an hour, all kit was packed tightly away, last meals and brews demolished, weapons oiled and ready, and bunkers evacuated. Brews. He's talking about tea. And the Brits, if you don't know, they like their tea. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's, it's epic. And I, I saw that you know, with Brits that I've worked with. Obviously, I'm married to a Brit, so I know how much they, they like tea and drink tea. Mm-hmm. I've I saw it overseas. Guys would be they they just would be ready to brew tea at any given time. Uh, the first people the the Sri Lankan when I was working with the Sri Lankan guys back in the back in the day, they've been heavy heavily influenced by the British Army, yeah, and by the British culture because that was a British settlement for a long time. They got their tea on too. They would brew any you know you'd take a break for ten minutes. These guys would be over there with a little stove, little hex lamp, brewing up a tea. Yeah. So that's something that you're gonna, and I, I I'm talking about it now. I don't highlight it as much as I could in the in this podcast, but that's what they're talking about: having a cup of tea, brewing a cup the of brew, tea, yeah. yeah, doing a brew. When I worked with guys, the SAS guys that would come and stay with us here, those guys were the same way. Get <laughs> their, their brew tea on. on, yeah. Gotta have they gotta have a cup of tea. <laughs> Solid. Back to the book. We made our way up the prominent part of Windy Gap where most of the battalion was gathering. The CSM, that's the Command Sergeant Major of B Company was organizing which kit we were to carry and which to leave. No tried, no tripods for the S, SF guns and the SF guns are sustained fire guns. It's basically a big heavy machine gun. Yeah. That that takes a crew to operate. So you have a tripod, someone carries the tripod, someone carries the gun, someone carries the ammunition, at least I think that's how they break it up. No tripods for the SF guns and no sleeping bags. No Bergens. Bergens is what the Brits call their big backpacks or big rucksacks. All unnecessary weight to be left. We repacked our kit. The Bergens and tripods were centralized for a later pickup. 
They were to be choppered forward if a chopper became available. We all felt pissed off about the conveyor being sunk and the prospect of the coming tab. So they call a, a, a march or a hump, they call it a tab. Mm. We were, we were uh, pissed off about the coming tab. We knew that the march would be about 50 kilometers. But we were all glad to be moving, breaking out across the island on the offensive. We set out at about 2.30 in the afternoon on what was to be an epic march for the regiment. With the GPMG, that's a general purpose machine gun, webbing order and ammo slung over every part of our bodies, we tabbed or rather hobbled as fast as we could. Once over the first hill, we started to march around the side of an adjoining hill. At this time, the Marines were walking alongside us, ready to break northwards toward Douglas, towards the Douglas settlement. Unlike us, they carried full kit, Bergens and all. Within 30 minutes, we had a short break to let the stragglers catch up. A young Marine was propped on his back beside me with his Bergen as a support. You lot have the right idea, he said. No fucking extras. We look like donkeys here. I couldn't help but agree with him, but thought to myself that while we may move faster, we'd be coldest at night. At that time, I didn't know we'd be marching flat out all the way, day and night. In less than an hour, our bodies were struggling under the weight of kit and ammo. The GPMG seemed to weigh a ton. We swapped it on every short break. Within the first two hours of the night march, orders were passed slowly back along the length of the battalion that we'd be stopping for 15 minutes in every hour. Some even started clock watching. Our boots and wet socks were becoming unbearable to march in, rubbing badly on the feet of most, if not all of us. Blisters and sprained ankles added unexpectedly to the injury toll and I haven't done a good job of describing the terrain mm. it's miserable terrain just rocks slippery rocks big steep hills it's it's go look at it on you go look at some images of what the terrain in the Falkland Islands is like yeah it's it's nightmare to nightmare to patrol on and it's the kind where it's snowing kind or? it's gonna snow yeah not yeah. snowing yet but it's gonna right, snow. but it's that cold where it's like yeah snow. which actually is actually in some ways worse. In some ways, it's worse to have because if it's cold enough that it's snowing, mm. snow is snow is generally dry. Oh. It, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. rain is rain. Yeah, right. Yeah. You get rained on, you're yeah. wet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you get snowed on, you can maintain your your dryness. So right. if you're in a really cold environment where it's where it's snowing, that's okay. The snow it's, it doesn't make you wet, yeah. and wet makes you cold. Yeah, it zaps. It sucks One of the worst heat. things is. Right on that borderline yeah, yeah. between because then you get rained on but then when the Sun goes down it turns into freezing So that this is the worst 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 environment you could you could want for yeah. this situation that they're in yeah. and All their gear they only have what limited gear they they should have Got sunk on a boat or it's in their Bergens But the, even the stuff that's in their Bergens isn't the full isn't the best winter equipment They, they would want yeah. all that stuff got sunk so he's got a guy that's starting to slack a little bit. Mm. His name is Taff. Taff, move up, move up, I screamed. I can't, Vince, I'm fucked. I was losing my rag. I could see he was out of it, but I couldn't stand the fact that he was going to let us down before we'd even got there. 
Taff was trying to keep up and mumbling out loud that he could do it if only we were to slow down a little bit. But this was impossible. Nobody could tell the lead elements to slow down. The gap got bigger. The swearing got louder. Taff wasn't the only one to feel the strain. Many of the lads were struggling. At last, exhausted, we stopped on the slope of yet another windswept hill. Taft shook uncontrollably. He had a bad cramp and lay there, totally out of the game. I informed the medics. Steve was sitting beside as usual when when the unusual order came from the CO, the commanding officer. Brew up a hot cuppa and make a snack. That was the order. This shocked a lot of us. Theoretically, it was a no-no sitting in the middle of an advance in the open and pitch dark. Practically, though, it was the best order yet. A welcome brew was what we needed. The CO was obviously aware that the lads were suffering from the speed of the march. To me, Taft looked as though he was about to die. His nine-stone frame wasn't strong enough for the rest of the march. Taft could run the British, the Army's British fitness test in around eight minutes and was considered our best runner. This proves, as do other accounts I heard after the war, that the fitness of troops cannot be determined by how fast they can run. The paras always pride themselves on tabbing with kit, so that means marching with gear, and rightly so. But I learned a lesson on our, on our first night's march. You must have body fat on you to waste for that kind of long tab that we had embarked on. So got a guy that's like, you know, super thin triathlete. Mm. Now he's now you put a bunch of weight on him. He's hurting. Mm. And, and I'll tell you that that was also uh, that's a generalization, too. That's yeah. not always true. Mm. I know some guys that were lean and could run fast and they could also hump a rock like it was good, like it was their like it was their business. Mm. Now they start gathering up kind of the guys that can't continue. And they leave, they actually leave these guys that can't continue in in a perimeter area. And then we're going back to the book. We slogged it out for another two or three hours of continuous hills, bogs, rocks, holes in the ground, everything that we could possibly everything that could possibly make you trip or get wet. On top of the bloody awful terrain, we had the rain, sleet, wind, and freezing climate to cope with. Exhausted and nearer the point of collapse. We came to the first man-made thing I'd seen, apart from the small houses at San Carlos. It was a barbed wire fence. There, right in the middle of nowhere, sat the fence, stretching far into the darkness on either side. Orders from above told us to rest up until first light. We had been marching for 15 hours across the worst terrain you could imagine. Steve and I attached our poncho with bungees, our ponchos with bungees to the fence, and Skitty, Kev, and Johnny bashed up on the other side, creating a tent-like accommodation. That's like their term for making shelter. Yeah. We, we'd call it bivy up, mm. which is where, that's where we're gonna sleep. They call it bashed up. We'd say bivy up, hey, we're gonna bivy up here. Mm. It rained hard for the remaining four hours of darkness. The wind blew the rain in on us as we all lay there trying to rest in the basher. But although we were exhausted, Someone snoring soon broke into my thoughts and outside around the basher little whispers could be heard and other voices shouting for silence. I closed my eyes dreaming of a bath, clean sheets, and a letter from home. I didn't mind the rain as it hit my face. The chance to rest was welcome and I eventually managed to sleep. 
I was awoken by a nudge from Skitty, who was already half-packed and ready to move. Steve and I crawled from our refuge and quietly packed our kit into our webbing. The rain and cold had shrunk the webbing so that it was difficult to fasten. Cold and numbness had us swearing out loud. We tabbed over more hills, through more bogs and marshes. My legs ached more than I had thought possible. Steve was, if anything, better than me with the weight. Every time I started to struggle with the GPMG, he took it without complaining. Carry that weapon he could. So, brutal march. They get to their next destination where they're going into a a layup point or a perimeter where they're going to stop for a while. Back to the book. My stomach felt hollow. The wind and rain drained me of life. Lying there, feeling near to total exhaustion, I couldn't even think of what was to come. The battle for Teal Inlet. My feet didn't exist anymore. They were just two blocks of numbed ice attached to my legs. Tapping them together brought a pain that felt as if they would shatter and fall off. Steve lay next to me, lighting up a fag, which is a cigarette. He looked up through the rain clouds at the darkened sky. If we carry on at this rate, we'll all drop dead of exhaustion, he murmured. Steve said that he didn't want to look at his feet because they felt like they were falling off. I peeled back my wet socks, saw blood on my right foot, and discovered that the nail of my big toe was hanging off. Numbness had masked what normally would have been agony. Clenching my teeth, I pulled the nail away by its remaining roots. Soon... The shout went out that we were to get ready to move. We were moving earlier than expected to catch the last of the daylight. When I stood up, my body ached from head to foot. I was minus one toenail. I took up my kit and moved into line with the others, ready to go the last 13 kilometers to Teal. So far, it had taken us about 14 hours to march 40-odd kilometers. That was still good going. We set off very slowly, spaced out in one long line. We hobbled over the hill in front of us, only to see more hills and marshes. I began to become conscious of my toe, and the more I thought about it, the worse it felt. However, the thought of dropping out at that stage seemed a fate worse than death, and so I fought the pain. It's funny, looking back, but the further we went into the campaign, the less I thought of my home or family. I wasn't thinking of queen and country either. I thought of myself and the lads around me. Letting the side down was my biggest fear. That fear kept me walking. Just doesn't want to let his boys down. That's his driving force. Not even thinking about his family anymore. Not thinking about God and country. Not thinking about the queen. Here's a little thing that I had to highlight. We were, we were annoyed by the lack of info coming down the marching line to tell us where we were and how far we had left the march. This is as a lesson I learned a long time ago when I was a young junior guy in a platoon. And if you're in the back of the platoon or you're in the back of the patrol and you don't know where you're going, yeah. it is the worst feeling. <laughs> it's the worst feeling. Yeah. You have no idea how much longer, where you're going, where you are. Not only is it a bad feeling for the, for the people on your team, 
it's tactically unsound because they don't know where they are. Yeah. So what happens if you get contacted? You get split up. Where are they supposed to go? They don't even know where they are. Yeah. What if they go in the wrong directions? They could get go into enemy formation. It's it's a horrible scenario. And obviously, as a leader in any position, you gotta think: Does your does the back of your patrol know where you are? Yeah. Does your company know where you are? I was working with a company recently. They had they had a big transition to make, but no one knew what quantified that transition. It just seemed like this open ended prospect, and and no one knew where it ended or what what quantified. Hey, okay, we can we can move to the next phase. Mm. So it and it was a tough phase that they were going through. You know, cutting costs and being restrictive on expenditures. I guess that is cutting costs, but th- getting rid of some people this is, a, is a tough time. Yeah. But no one knew when that was going to end. Right, right. They just thought, well, they, they knew that there was some kind of goal out there, but they didn't know what it was. Yeah. And that was really tough for them in the transition. So I said, you know, you need to set clear goals. If you know what they are, which actually the leadership did know, mm. they knew there was a certain line, a certain amount of cost that they needed to cut, a curtain, a certain operating expense that they needed to get down to. Mm. But they didn't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone just thought, well, we might just be cutting my job next, or who, yeah. you know, well, how long am I going to be here? Yeah, Maybe yeah. we're just shutting down. I don't know. Yeah. So keep your people informed. The people that are in the back end of your patrol, you got to keep them informed. Back to the book. We came to a fourth river, smaller than the rest, and stumbled across it in the dark. The cold water mixed with our sweat to cause yet more sores on our feet. We were now about one and a half kilometers from the settlement of Teal Inlet. The agony of the marching disappeared quickly as it became clear that the task of battle would soon confront us. And how does that go? One and a half hours of lying in the cold with the winds shooting through us was all the action they had that night. So they, they get to Teal Inlet and really nothing really happens because the Argies had left. They do get some updates. Back to the book. We found out that some of the platoon had dropped out on the march. More importantly, though, Mick Coleman, one of our gunners, had just been shot in the leg. Not by the enemy, but by a knob in A Company. <laughs> so their first you know, casualty, besides someone getting hurt from marching, mm-hmm. is somebody that gets shot by one of their own people. What's a knob? Just a derogatory term for a tool. <laughs> <laughs> right, a, knob. a turd. Gotcha. Yeah. Right, it's not a, it's not a, uh, not a military term. Right, it's not official. It's not official military <laughs> doctrinal term. Knob. Mm. Just saying a, a turd. The CEO and his back to the book. The CEO and his band of followers inspected the lines later that morning. So now they're dug in in another position. We thought they might instruct us to move our trench or something. The usual thing. But we were still thinking as though we were on exercise. So, cl- classic point right there. The commanding officer comes around and they think, oh, he's going to tell us to redig these trenches because that's what we'd be doing if we were on exercise. Hey, you need to move this over here. That could be a little bit better. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do any of that. The CO looked grim as he approached the six of us taking a tea break. Listen in, lads, said the RSM. That's the, the regimental sergeant major. We looked at him, wondering what was coming. During the march, two para, so that's their sister battalion, Mm. two para attacked Goose Green and Darwin settlements. After a long battle, the regiment liberated the settlement with the loss of 18 lives, including their commanding officer, Colonel H. Jones. 
Many have been wounded, and a casualty list is being drawn up. They captured hundreds of Argies. The war is now a different concept, for the enemy are believed to have shot down members of two para showing a white flag. More information will be given once known. The CO half smiled and proceeded to the next line of partly dug trenches. Skiddy, Kev, John, and I looked at each other with open mouths. The thought of 18 members of two para dead outweighed the victory for us. I, for one, couldn't, couldn't have given a shit about Goose Green or anywhere else on the island at that time. It was the thought of losing our mates in the sister battalion that worried me. So they think they've got it bad, but this other battalion had been in a serious gunfight and taken some pretty significant casualties, including losing their leader, the leader of the battalion. Back to the book, the condition of our feet was becoming a major problem for the battalion. An old complaint suffered by troops during many wars was afflicting us in modern war, trench foot. Our boots, badly and cheaply made, coupled with our old-fashioned socks and putties, caused this condition. And, and putties are like, I don't know if you've ever seen those old kind of school World War I they're like leggings or like gaiters. You know what gaiters are? They kind of cover your shoes. They kind of okay. cover your boots. Mm. It was this trench foot, it was characterized by a dull, thumping ache all over the foot with blueness at the edges. Some say it's similar to frostbite, which some lads also got. Now they hold up for the night, and then uh, as he's sleeping, we get this Corporal B, Corporal B. That's 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 who we're talking about right now. That's Vince Vince Bramley. He's, they call him Corporal B a bunch. Mm. Corporal B, Corporal B. A voice ris- whispered into the trench. Steve and I came around together. I looked up to see four platoons officer looking down at me. Yes, sir. I replied. Vince, isn't it? Yes, sir. Being asked your first name wasn't unusual between officers and men in the field. Sorry, old boy. Bad news for you. In my half-sleep, I couldn't think of anything worse than being woken up. Orders from the boss. We're pulling out at first light and marching to Estancia, he said. Estancia? Where the fuck is that, I asked. It was another 30 to 50 kilometers away towards Stanley, we learned. Stanley, again, is the capital. Steve and I looked at each other as we sat in the bottom of our trench too numb to speak. I broke the silence first. This is getting fucking stupid, Steve. March here, dig there, we're dropping down like flies, and now more. Do or die marching without resting. Steve started laughing at my moaning, his teeth shining in the dark. What are you so happy about, I said. Just thought of more pain for the cause. Pain. Jesus, he was right. My feet would die before me, I thought. As I drifted back to sleep, I thought of my old corporal who trained me, Corporal Deering. We hated him for his hard methods. He used to say, pain doesn't matter, the mind does the work. He was right, so right. His voice was screaming in my ears now, four years later. It was going to be mind over matter. There is wisdom in the para's training method. methods. I thought briefly of my parents, who 
over the years had had a rough time with my slobbish attitude. I had been in and out of all sorts of trouble before joining the army. I said to myself that if I died with a bullet in the head, at least it would be better than worrying them into an early grave with my attitude. But to drop out now and be branded a wanker would be unbearable. I owed a lot to everyone, my old NCO, my parents, and above all, to the lads around me. A para-team cannot work without everyone giving their best. It's the lads you fight and work for. You come second. So, obviously, more patrolling, more boots, boots, boots over the Falkland Islands, another 30 kilometers up and down crappy terrain. Back to the book. We are now within the enemy's artillery range. The CO has ordered that we will dig shell scraps for protection. No movement like walking around, etc., until ordered tomorrow. So now they're within enemy artillery range, which we don't like artillery around here. Not when it's coming towards us, at least. They, they're taking a look at each other, seeing where they're at. Steve and Tom looked at my feet, wondering if I would be able to carry on. I found a bandage hidden in my webbing and cut it up to make small dressings for my blisters and toes. I thought the fresh air would do them help. Leaving my boots off that night was by well, leaving my boots off that night was to be my worst mistake so far. After a freezing cold and sleepless night, the morning light showed me two swollen feet and the hardest frozen pair of boots imaginable. Putting those boots back on was agony. We marched for about four hours until the whole battalion had rendezvoused. By the time we reached this point, I was nearly crying in pain. My hips had bad webbing burns and my feet were two raw blobs. As I slumped against a peak, a peat bank, Jimmy Morum murmured that I looked like death warmed up. I felt like it too. Within two weeks, we looked like a rag and bone army. Our faces were drawn with the loss of weight, our uniforms matted and soaked, our boots were damaged, and we were hungry for solid food. Despite all this, morale was very high in the reassuring knowledge that we had marched and taken most of the island without a battle or a loss of life so far. So they're they're making rapid progress. And they're not really coming up against any enemy. The, the enemy's retreating. Every time they roll into a place, they find remnants of where the enemy was, or they have intelligence that was the enemy was there, but the enemy's just leaving. So it's just them against nature. Yeah. That's where it's been for the most part at this point. They keep, they keep humping. We shuffled together, and we were informed that we would be marching straight onto Mount Longden that night. The battle was about to begin. So this is a prominent piece of terrain called Mount Mount Longden. We had no time for last letters or anything else. We packed our kit and were briefed and ready to go within two hours. The battalion formed up and marched uphill again, spilling out of the settlement towards the summit of Estancia. The route we took was atrocious. We crossed a rock field of some sort. The rocks were sharp and jagged. In four hours, we only covered three kilometers. Sweat ran down us like water. I stopped at one stage to take off my soaking long johns. 
We came to halt as the order turned back, turned back, hit our ears. What's the fucking matter now? Someone shouted. Just turn back and do as you're told, screamed an officer. Just on the other side of the hill, out of the view of Stanley, which is the, the capital, the lads, lads had been ordered back. Why? Shortly after, we learned that the cabbage heads, so they call, that's the Marines, and there's Marines, Royal Marines are down there working and, and running some of the major operations, and they call them cabbage heads. Mm. Shortly after, we learned that the cabbage heads running the show hadn't agreed to our advance. They didn't think we should take the risk of going into battle on our own. So the, the, the Marines wanted to be there with them, so they said, oh, don't, don't go to, to uh, Longden yet. Back to the book. As we were milling around a peat fire with nine squadron, a chopper came down from one of the mountains. Some nosy lads ran towards it and quickly brought back a report that some Marines had been in a blue-on-blue contact that night. So another blue-on-blue. A returning patrol had stumbled upon a mortar-based team asleep and had shot them as they lay in their sleeping bags. There were three to four dead. Whatever we felt about the Marines, we were sorry for them on that day. If, if you're out there and you use a gun for part of your job, whether you're in, in the police department, whether you're in a SWAT team, whether you're in the military, I'm telling you, the blue on blue happens. And you gotta do all you can to train for situations and always be aware that it can happen. People don't think it can happen, that's why it happens. Back to the book, on 10 June we had orders that something was going down soon. We stripped our weapons thoroughly oil and oiled and greased them. The PC issued 50 rounds per gun for, for balancing. That's, that's like basically test firing and probably doing some kind of a timing drill on your weapon to make sure that, that it's good to go. Mm. Bob Geddes immediately balanced his gun by firing across the water inlet into the sea. Tony Jones was just setting up his when the QM, that's a quartermaster guy in charge of supplies and logistics, came screaming over and ordered us not to waste ammo. We pointed out that the guns needed balancing, but his narrow mind wouldn't have it. He walked away pleased by the thought of saving ammo. In fact, he caused a major fuck up with all the guns in the battle. Only two of the six worked. 50 rounds through each might have saved lives and would have at least provided better firepower for the battalion. So you, you got a guy, <laughs> the, the supply guy, hey, don't, don't test fire your weapons. Don't do that right now. Save the ammunition. Now, they did realize that they were going to have an ammunition shortage. That was going to be a problem. But you're not going to have an ammunition shortage if your guns don't work. Mm. Back to the book. The PC came down and we gathered around him eagerly. He stood faintly, grinning at us. Spit it out, sir, said Johnny Cook. Orders in a half an hour. Tonight, lads. Green light. See you by the model in a half an hour. So, the model, he's talking about they built a little you know, terrain model mm-hmm. so that they could kind of draw out where everyone's going, kind of mm-hmm. go through the plan. Mm-hmm. And this is what they're talking about now is the assault on Mount Longdon, which is about to begin begins with getting into position and finally they are in position the assault is getting started things start going sideways pretty damn quickly 
back to the book lieutenant oliver rushed over to our position right listen in he said i felt like saying i was anyway but for the time joking was over b company have had to change their tactics a bit corporals bramley's and Cook's teams will follow myself and Captain Mason into A Company positions, while Corporal Tomo, Tomo, Rawlings, and Pierce will go to another task. Okay? So things are going crazy. They start to move. He starts to move with, uh, with Lieutenant Oliver towards this other position. Back to the book. We'd run about 200 meters. We were all still together, but now the run had become a fast, stumbling walk. The noise of battle continued to grow continued to our right now as we moved around the slope suddenly a zipping sound whipped across my face I didn't think anything of it as I walked and stumbled to keep up then three or four more zips hit the ground in front of at in front and at my feet I still carried on I was walking behind lieutenant Oliver as I was walking behind lieutenant Oliver we saw bodies lying all over the place I thought what the fuck are they doing lying there Jesus Christ fucking lying there and we're struggling I saw a lad kneeling over a guy in a sleeping bag. I remember as I got to them, just watching him. A low moaning was coming from the sleeping bag. I'd gone about 20 paces when several more zips hit the ground, sending a small shockwave all around me. For fuck's sake, are you completely nuts or what? Some guy shouted. What? Asked Lieutenant Oliver. Do you know a sniper's picking at us? We stopped, frozen solid in our trucks, then fell to the ground our small column now joining the bodies lying all over the place. We had walked into A Company's form-up where they had been stopped by a sniper. Lying there, it hit me like a sledgehammer. The zips had been, that had been missing me by inches, they were sniper fire. I lay there thinking, you fucking idiot, Vince. I cursed myself all the time we lay there, blaming myself for an unprofessional act, but then I'd never been shot at before and my mind had been so occupied with moving that the zipping sound seemed unconnected with the battle. So like I said, first time being shot at, and he didn't know what it was. And I've told this story on here before, but the first time I got shot at, or the first time I was receiving fire was in the Humvees, and I thought someone was throwing cigarettes out (laughs) onto the road. And I was like, who the hell is smoking in that Humvee ahead of me? But it was rounds hitting the Humvee. So, and and I was the same way. I was just like, didn't, it didn't occur to me when it hits you that that they're bullets are you like in shock or or do you just kind of shift into you know yeah game, i shifted game into game time but it took me uh, not it wasn't it was a pretty slow transition yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> I, it, it took me it took me to think through the whole process of who's smoking a cigarette wait yeah. why are they throwing cigarettes wait why do they have so many cigarettes wait. is the entire humvee smoking a cigarette and it's putting them all out right now <laughs> and it wasn't like a massive volume of fire yeah. but it was rounds hitting well, and, yeah, it can and, be one. Yeah, yeah, that's the wait. Uh, so you saw it on on another Humvee in front of yeah, you. Yeah, the kind, Humvee in front of you me. Saw the sparks. I saw the sparks gotcha. coming off of it, and I thought, mm, some throwing cigarettes. Yeah, someone's throwing. <laughs> why is someone throwing a cigarette out? Holy cow! Same, same thing. I will say this though: we, when the first time I got shot at when I wasn't in a vehicle, you, I heard the, the rounds going over, and I yeah. knew what it was because I was used to it from when we do. Butts, I don't, know, I don't know how else to explain it. When you shoot on a range, uh-huh. like when you go sight in your rifle, uh-huh. you shoot on the range and and some of us guys, you go down and you work the targets for the other guys. So you're in basically in a bunker kind of. Oh, okay. Or you're yeah. behind a big berm. Yeah, yeah. And you put the target up for your guys. Gotcha. And then when they shoot at it, you pull it that back down, you mark it with these 
discs so that they know where their shots at so mm-hmm. they can make adjustments then you put it back up again so when you're doing that mm-hmm. and you do it at different distances mm-hmm. the, you, they shoot from different distances they shoot from 100 yards and they shoot from 300 yards and they shoot from 500 yards and they shoot from 800 yards so you can just hear all these different ones and the further out they get the more you hear the actual sound of the round going over you right and at certain ranges you can hear it breaking the sound barrier mm-hmm. you know, it's, and it's pretty loud it's a it's a crack, crack. more yeah. but then when they get far enough away it, it you don't hear that anymore and it just sounds like he's talking about like a little zip like a little yeah. you know it's yeah. it's a but i knew what it was the first time i ever got shot at i knew exactly what it was yeah yeah it's crazy i knew what was go- well that's the first time i got shot at not in a humvee right not in the humvee which by the way i got shot at first that was the first time i ever got shot at was it was in the humvee, in the humvee. yeah yeah all right going back to the book the battle was raging on the hill Artillery shells were landing there adding to the ricochet of bullets if you slowly raised your head You could watch the free firework display because that's what it looked like the odd shout could be heard and the odd scream But it was the sound of rifle machine gun and artillery that dominated the night So we've gone from hey, we're out on patrol. and We're looking now. They're in full. There's a full battle going on Mm. After about an hour we were all getting pissed off with this fucking sniper Something had to be done and quick he was holding up 130 men. So these guys are pinned down. They're yeah. they're pinned down, and the idea was that finally the plan that they come up with is they're going to use a Milan called a Milan. It's like a, a short range kind of. It's like a bazooka, but it's wire guided, so you can actually steer it a little bit. It's a missile, a little hand carried missile, and that's the plan is to use that to shoot from where they think this sniper is shooting from. So they get in position, they get the Milan in position, and then they're gonna, once they shoot with the Milan, they're gonna shoot their machine guns at it. Mm. Stand by, shouted Captain Mason. My feet were forgotten, my mind emptied of any thoughts, but my eyes were completely alive, staring at the area of the fin, he's talking about this uh, terrain feature that looked like a shark fin, Mm. and possible target. Fire! Ginge let off the Milan. The rocket whooshed off the small portable frame and picked up its deadly speed. After 120 meters, it was at its deadliest. We were only about 90 meters from the target. By the way, if you're a sniper shooting at you from 90 meters, that is scary. He's not missing. Ginge managed to guide the wire missile, to wire guide the missile on target. The explosion ripped into the night, sending sparks everywhere. Bob pressed the trigger and our gun burst to life for a few seconds then stopped stoppage screamed Bob I tried to lift the feed the cover off the top of the GPMG but the night sight was in the way I ripped off the night sight from the weapon and threw it into Sass's hands it's another guy Sass I cleared the gun and reloaded Bob was just about to fire again when a zipping sound ripped into the ground right in front of our tripod we both ducked behind the bank the enemy's bullets whizzed over our heads and all around us. Ginge was laughing and shouted, They've seen you all right. Fucking brilliant, isn't it? My knight and the bloody guns packed up. Captain Mason shouted over from behind us, Reload! Reload! CS9 wants another one up there. So they want him to hit it again, hit that sniper position again with the Milan, which they do. And they eventually take care of that problem and, and are able to move on now they 
start coming back down from that from that supporting position because th- that's what they're doing is the most part they're assigned into supporting positions to get the high ground and support the assault as they're happening they come back down from that we reach the bottom of the hill at about zero zero three zero hours the battle had been going for some three and a half hours we came up to the FAP that's their first aid post and walked past a line of guys lying there moaning in half silence the medics were busy with all the wounded there seemed to be about 25 guys working and wounded in the group we were sitting some 20 meters from them in the darkness and we could only just see the scene by the light of the moon a sergeant from battalion HQ came over and told came over to us and lieutenant Oliver and captain Mason stood up to meet him we have three confirmed dead at this moment he said Murdoch Scott and Greenwood we know there are more, but we can't get to them as yet. So Murdoch, if you remember the guy that was making fun of, making funny faces when they were on the boat coming in, mm. he confirmed dead. Their conversation continued around our coming task and that the RSM was coming to meet us. I sat in a trance. I couldn't believe that we had lost guys. Today it seems crazy that I should think like this. Why? I can only put it down to the fact that I was still in my own little world of make-believe. We would win the war without getting anyone killed. The death of those three guys hit me like a brick. Total shock. Murdoch, or simply Doc. Doc, who I'd been chatting with on the way to our start line after we bumped into B Company, now dead. Scotty from the MT platoon, that's the motor transport platoon, like Greenwood, recently nicknamed Fester because of his sleeping habits. My mind was blank to the conversation around me. Johnny nudged me. Vince, we're moving, mate. This woke me to the reality of it all. I was now fully alert, for surely there was more to come. So now they're getting to another, like I said, their job has been doing supporting supporting arms, which is basically cover and move on a big scale. That's mm-hmm. what they're doing. You've got a, a group, this this machine gun platoon, with the Milan, with the heavy machine guns, they're getting into elevated positions to cover for another element, another company, or another battalion to go in and assault a target. This mm. is classic cover and move situation, and they're in the cover position mm. in most of these situations. And that's what's going on where we come back to the book. They're in another elevated firing position. Back to the book. Corporal B, get ready. I waited for the command sergeant major to give the orders to fire. The wait was longer than I expected and my fingers stayed on the trigger, frozen, waiting. As I sat waiting for the command, other voices came to my ears from among the sounds of battle. The voices of the wounded. Everywhere, their cries pitched in with those survivors still struggling and screaming frantically at each other to move there or move here. But the wounded were unlike anything else. Their cries could be heard above the uninjured. Their shouts were desperate. My mind went blank. My eyes were wide open with fright for them. My mouth dried as I lay there. The seconds seemed like hours. Their anguished moaning and crying is here in my ears now as I write. No matter what I or others did, to try and ignore them, they somehow grew, seemed to grow louder and louder. I burned with frustration. One victim, who I later found out was Baz Barrett, seemed so near, groaning and shouting, help me, please, don't leave me, for fuck's sake, help, I can't move. 
Someone further along to our left called out, for Christ's sake, I'm dying. Don't let them bury me here. Please, please. I shouted out, hang on, don't don't move, for fuck's sake, keep quiet. I started to crawl from my position. I wanted to help them. The platoon commander grabbed my arm. Leave it, Corporal B. Leave it. I looked at him. Why? Because a sniper has already picked off about five or six guys that have tried to help. The top says no more, okay? I slumped to the ground with a feeling of total helplessness. It was the worst feeling that anyone can imagine. As I tried not to think it was real, the cries continued. Oh God, I'm hitting the chest. I'm all wet. Please help. The crying went on and on. Some wounded guys had been dragged or had crawled away from the main impact area only to be pinned down elsewhere. My mind seethed with anger. Corporal B, stand by, the CSM screamed. The command to follow killed off all the cries and moaning. The weapon broke a stream of fire at the Argentinian positions, three to five rounds bursting across the summit. The steady rate of fire continued as the CSM shouted across to change direction using our tracer rounds as indicators. All six guns opened up. Our tracers ripped across the summit to the other end of the mountain, the bullets bouncing and ricocheting in all directions. So, hammering the target, they're hammering the, the enemy from where the enemy is shooting, and, and obviously, I mean, what a, what a wretched description of being within the sound of the voices of your wounded men who you cannot help because they're pinned down by snipers. Eventually, they, this, I mean, this goes on for a long time. They're in this supporting position. They're laying down fire. They're shooting thousands and thousands and thousands of rounds. Back to the book. The CSM shouted, stop, stop. Worn out, we rested our heads on the ground. The battle had now been going on for some 11 hours. How long we had laid in there firing, I did not know. The CSM came over. Well done. A company are moving through to our left now. We've covered them and given them all the help we could give. The rest is up to them. We can't fire anymore. It'd get to them. It's too close now. It'll be light in an hour or so. Pull the gun back and dismount it. Sir, did we get any, asked Bob. More than enough, he replied, and walked away. Had we killed? We must have. I felt nothing afterwards. Just relaxed. I hadn't seen our targets. They had been hidden in darkness. We hadn't killed at the end of a bayonet or through a rifle sight. We had killed with a spray of machine gun bullets. It didn't seem personal. It was as if the enemy hadn't existed at all. They complete that mission and then 
yes. They crawl back to a little bit of a covered position away from where they had been supporting. And then here we go, back to the book. About 70 meters away, the ground exploded in a mass of earth, shrapnel, and rock. Then another shell came over, this time further to our right. I looked down the hill as the shell exploded and saw an unbelievable display of flying red sparks, deadly shrapnel. The ground shook as shell after shell fell behind us. The first minutes of shelling were terrifying. So they've been, this is it. Now Now they started, we mentioned that they were in artillery range and we all know what an absolute horror show artillery is back to the book in the distance a booming sound began that carried over the area someone screamed incoming incoming sure enough the air disappeared there was a whoosh and the explosion killed any remaining peace the shells came in thick and fast I lay watching the red glowing shrapnel flying by now the shrapnel was creeping up towards me the explosions getting so loud I thought they would deafen me the shells were landing about 50 meters away. Four or five shells would hit an area in a salvo. Then the next batch would hit about 10 meters nearer. The booming from Stanley could still be heard in the gaps between explosions in our areas. As I lay there watching the shrapnel getting closer, I found myself shaking. Was it from cold or fright? My legs shook and I couldn't control them at all. The next salvo landed 30 meters away. I curled up into a ball as the shrapnel splintered the rocks around me. A piece of shrapnel landed in my little alcove, still burning with fury, sizzling into the dirt by my waist. Four or five more shells landed around us, and then it stopped, as if it had never begun. The air was misty as though a fog had swept over us. I lay back, praying it was over. In the half-light of the false dawn, I could now hear shouting all down the hill. Some guys were screaming like mad. One voice went right through me, the scream of a man who knows he's about to die. All over the hill, people were shouting, Medic! Medic! I was about to crawl from my hole when another shell hit the ground. I hadn't even heard it coming. I fell on my face and stayed there for a few seconds. Another shell landed nearby. This time, a shower of dirt fell on my back. I crawled back into my hole and curled up again, waiting. My body shook uncontrollably. The shells landed in thick salvos, the noise and explosions around me, making my head spin as if someone were banging it against a wall. I willed it to stop, but the shells carried on, landing around me. Then, this second bombardment, within minutes, ended as suddenly as it had begun. So, horrible, horrible situation that they're in. And much like we talked about the Germans having their mortars dialed in and their artillery dialed in, it's the same thing. You're in the Falkland Islands. There's obvious terrain features. Mm. So when you're holding a city, like the, the Argentinians military is in the city of Stanley well they know where they're gonna get attacked from and they know what are good firing positions so they have those positions dialed into their artillery yeah. and they can just start hammering them 
back to the book. I can remember the OC shouting behind me, move, move, their artillery will be here soon again. So now they're trying to move. Sergeant P waited only for me to squeeze myself through the gap before he took off again. After we had gone about four or five steps, a hand dropped out of the rocks, grabbing at my ankle and denims. The shock of it made us jump. Instantly, Sergeant P was back with me. We both looked at my feet. Still holding my denims was a wounded RG. His eyes were staring at me, pleading, perhaps, full of sorrow. Sergeant P shouted, step, step back, Brammers. I tried to step back, but the wounded soldier tightened his grip on me. I leaned back as Sergeant P pointed his weapon and fired two bullets into the man's head, the noise of his weapon echoing around the small gap. Tomo and Johnny were behind me now. The RG's head bounced quickly as the two rounds entered him. His eyes rolled to the back of his head, and his mouth opened to the release a trickle of blood and saliva, which ran down his chin onto his shirt collar. At the same time, his hand gave up its grasp on my denims and dropped onto my boot. I flicked my boot as if I was playing football. His hand and arm dropped across his body, and from his mouth came a low whistle of air mixed with blood. All this took seconds, but it seemed like a lifetime to me. Each detail remains with me today. The sight of this guy dying at my feet shocked me, but I was growing harder. Although shaken, I felt no remorse at the time. The deadly game of war lay at my feet. Only I mattered. The rights of wrongs, the rights and wrongs of war can never be argued from the armchair. Decisions are made on the spot, questions asked afterwards. That lone RG could have been rigged to a booby trap or even armed. The kill was done quickly and professionally. I felt that I should have acted as quickly as Sergeant P. Come on, move, he shouted. Sergeant P screamed in order for me to follow him. As we trotted further into the clearing, we had to jump over the twisted pile of corpses. My mind was never, nor has since been, so alert. Adrenaline was rushing through my body so quickly that I felt I was floating with excitement mingled with fear. A little further into the clearing lay three or four Argentinians visibly shaken, shaking visibly close together on the ground. We ran, half-walked through a deadly, sickening area of death. They looked up as we arrived. All had been seriously wounded and were moaning and crying. One held up his hands across his eyes and shouted, Mama. I felt he thought that we were, or I was, about to shoot him. He went on calling for his mama in a low wail. One Argentinian sat in a trance, his eyes wide and staring at nothing. Tears ran down his face, the only sign that he was alive. None of them moved. All looked like they expected to be shot by us, but we ran past. The whole area was littered with weapons, helmets, clothing, and food, and ammo. A few bullets whizzed overhead and smashed into the rocks. A corporal shouted that tumble down, this is another, another uh, prominent terrain feature, tumble down was firing at us. We ran into a tight gap in the path and all came to an abrupt halt. 
as it was a dead end. Four or five bodies lay sprawled there close together. This time, they were our own men. The camouflaged pair of smocks hit my eyes immediately. CSM Wicks was standing over them like a guardian, screaming at some of his men to cover the further end of the path in a small crest. The CSM and Sergeant P exchanged quick words. I wasn't listening. My mind was totally occupied with looking into the crags for the enemy. I turned to look at our own lads, dead on the ground, mowed down when they tried to rush through this gap. I felt both anger and sadness. The CSM's face showed the strain of having seen most of his company either wounded or shot dead. That night's fighting was written in every line of his face. We all doubled back into the clearing we had just run through. We spread out and waited for our next move. A wounded Argentinian lay right next to me 10 meters away. He'd been hit in the chest and screamed as he held the wound. A lad from B Company ran across the clearing at him and ran his bayonet through him. The screaming Argentinian tried to grab the bayonet from him before it took his life. Our lad screamed, Shut up! Shut up, you cunt! The enemy soldier died as the bayonet was withdrawn. The lad walked back to his seat among the rocks as if nothing had happened. To my right, three Argentinians were crying with their heads in their hands. Were they the dead man's friends? At their feet lay one of our lads, moaning in pain as a medic attended to him. I could see his back was peppered with shrapnel. I swung to my left and fell against some rocks. I now felt the shock of it all coursing through my body. I wailed softly, my throat feeling like I wanted to choke. My eyes watered and I shook my head to force myself into reality. But this was reality. I looked for Bob and Johnny. I couldn't see Bob, but Johnny was there staring right at me. Our eyes met telling each other that we felt the end had come. A lad, resting with his rifle pointed towards Tumbledown, turned, fell into a tight ball, curling himself up as he hit the ground, screaming, Incoming! Incoming! We all dropped to the ground, crawling behind rocks wherever we could. The first shell went over us onto the west side of the mountain. Then the shells started to creep up towards us, and one thump into the clearing, hitting a rock about 30 meters away. The ground shook as if we'd been hit by an earthquake. Shrapnel pierced the ground or bounced off of rocks all around us. Grant Grinham screamed out. Shrapnel had hit his leg. Two of his mates were pulling him into better cover as the shells rained down us around us again. Soon after, Corporal Stuart McLaughlin, McLaughlin was hit in the back by shrapnel. He was later killed by a direct mortar hit as he was being taken to a first aid post. 
I lay there trembling as shells roared over us. Each explosion shook more fear into us. We had centered our group about halfway along the mountain. The OC shouted us to split up a bit, otherwise a direct hit would cause a heavy loss. Three or four anti-tank lads got up and ran to a bunker on the other side of the hill as another salvo came rushing in on us. A shell crashed into the rock above the OC, sending shrapnel and rock in the opposite direction to us. He looked up at all of us as we looked at him, expecting him to be dead, since the shell had only landed a few meters from us all. He shouted across, well, that was a naughty one, wasn't it? We laughed, unanimous in appreciation of his complete calm. The shells came in for over an hour. We just lay there, hoping, praying that it would end soon. I lay looking straight into Johnny's face, who at times would poke out his tongue or do his grin again. The shelling stopped, as usual, as suddenly as it had began. I stood up and saw Kev Connery crouched by a rock. Kev, I screamed. He looked over and smiled. Get your arse over here, you twat! He had started to walk towards us when two or three more shells hit home. We all flopped to the ground once more. The vibration of the explosion shook us on, and the earth landed on our backs. We jumped up to see Kev running towards us. He jumped into our little opening. Jesus, fuck me, he said. I've had a right night of it too. Where's Johnny Crow and Skitty, mate? I asked. Kev looked into my face and said, Johnny's dead. He's dead, Vince. Killed outright. Skitty's been wounded. Only me left. Oh, for fuck's sake. How? In the attack, a burst of rounds hit Johnny square in the chest. I reckon he was dead before he hit the ground, Kev explained. We carried on chatting about the situation in general. Rick Westy was brewing up for us when we heard the booming sound again from Stanley. Incoming, someone screamed. Not again, Johnny shouted. We were getting more scared with each bombardment. We hit the ground and fought to get legs, arms, and bodies more comfy and secure than each other's. At this rate, they'll get us. We can't have luck on our side forever, you know, I shouted as the shells exploded around us. I lay next to Kev. We both faced the mess tin where a cuppa was brewing. A shell landed not three meters away, sending shrapnel and dirt in our direction. Rocks and earth fell around us then over us, as if we were about to be buried alive. Both Kev and I automatically reached out to cover the mess tin and the water that was coming to a boil. The dirt landed on our hands, and the brew was saved. Everyone burst out laughing. Talk about a time of crisis to all let's have a cup of tea, Johnny shouted. brutal the you know great account and I know we've we've been done gone through a lot of accounts of being shelled with artillery that's a that's a very descriptive yeah. and granular one <clears throat> and uh, it, it's not over 
back to the book Kevin and I walked up and over the hill Ricky followed us armed with a smock order with every pocket filled with mags for our SLRs we came to a clearing Ricky was busy looking to one side of us when suddenly Kev and I heard moaning we stepped up on a ledge and came face to face with a wounded RG sitting beside him was his friend who obviously wouldn't leave him the wounded soldier had been shot in both knees and in his chest and arms blood showed on all the wounds his face showed no pain merely pleading his mate stood up and put his hands up no one had seen these two until now I pointed my rifle and bayonet and nodded towards the wounded guy he started wailing and moaning and put both hands together as if praying to me Kev pulled a pistol from his belt well Vince we either shoot them or help them what will it be Kev lowered his pistol and looked at me I raised my rifle and framed the wounded Argy's head right in the sight the man looked down as if he was expecting death knowing that he could do nothing about it he wailed louder I lowered my rifle Kev he looks like my neighbor I'll help them okay yeah okay I'm off to find some goodies he walked off I motioned to his mate to sit on the other side of the wounded guy while I placed my weapon to one side of me and went down to help the wounded RG's mate shook his head looking at my rifle me friend me friend you friend you help my friend we all friends now he pleaded I looked at him and gave him a small grin he grinned back I didn't trust him one bit the wounded guy started to cry it was then that I felt sad sad that I had thought of killing them and that we were all in this mess together we had different views and different homes but there we were all together I still hated the enemy but just then when that guy started to cry I felt different we all had to be hard hard to the facts of what was happening to all of us kill or be killed I made my way back to where our team was stationed I got there as Rick was sitting down the OC was busy with orders Vince we're out of water got any Johnny asked no I replied just then Captain Mason shouted had any of you seen Peter Hedeker around I saw him last night with with gin with Ginge and West sir I shouted perhaps Westy will know Captain Mason looked at me with serious eyes all the support team who were sitting there looked at Captain Mason and me I felt something was wrong the OC motioned me over I got to him and crouched down corporal B Ginge McCarthy was killed and so was Philip West the shell was meant for your gun team a flashback of what had happened filled my mind the smock pulled from my back the spinning head the deafness it must have missed you by inches corporal B you okay yeah I'm okay I'll go find Hedeker then Captain Mason came over sir he said to the OC 
Pete Hedeker was killed also. The bears have now found his body. I stood up and walked back to my spot. I was gutted beyond belief. Pete had always been my mate. We'd spent many times together drinking in the shop. I met his family too. Now he was dead. Only a short while ago I'd been sitting beside him. He'd said what a good spot he had. Now he was dead, killed by a shell that was meant for me. I'll never forget that I survived while he was killed. So they 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 do some movement. They actually get back up into their positions to where they were, actually to where Ginge had been when he had been killed. Going back to the book, we turned around to where Ginge had lain and walked back from the skyline to find a gap through which to find the gap through which Sergeant P had led us. In this way, we avoided being seen from tumbledown. On the ground, I saw bits of clothing and flesh. Everywhere resembled a slaughter yard. We walked down 10 meters or so, and there was more and more. Stuck on the side of a rock was clearly a large piece. Johnny and I moved closer to it, and my stomach churned as I saw the nose and cheek of a face. We looked at each other, our eyes wide. I put my bayonet under the flesh and flicked it to the ground before burying it quickly. Neither of us spoke. I had no doubts, and Pete M. confirmed to me that this was the remains of a mate. Pete told me later that he had died instantly, for only the waist down remained. I felt gutted beyond belief. I had been told of the direct hit that had also killed two others. To see it with my own eyes, the body and remains was, was another story. Over Walking over the crest, we bumped into Pat Harley. With him were one or two others, although I no longer remember who they were. As I was talking to Pat, I noticed a helmet on the end of an SLR planted in the rock face. Nodding towards this, Pat mentioned that he had come up and found Geordie Lang dead. We rounded the rock face and at our feet lay Doc and Geordie, both on their backs. They had died in an open space with the infamous tumble-down looking down on them. Geordie had died trying to save Doc. The bastard sniper had caught him in the open as he reached him. Jordy lay with his mouth slightly open. Gunshot wounds to his chest and stomach meant he died quickly. 
Evidence around him showed that he had tried to reach Doc. He had been, had he been calling for him help himself, Pat, looking cut up, took Jordy's fags, saying he'd want us to have these rather than the rear echelon. We turned our attention to Doc, who was more depressing. Doc hadn't died quickly. Quickly. He must, in fact, have been fully aware of his injuries. The top part of his skull was blown away, the brain visible smashed by a sniper's bullet. Only the fragmented skull had prevented the complete collapse of the side of his head. How he survived the impact, God knows. Laying beside him were items from the first aid kit he'd been carrying. A field dressing, half open, safety pins in his right hand fingers near the ground. His left hand held a morphine syringe. This had been used, the thin needle pointed towards him. It must have been his dying act. His radio mic was still attached to his throat. A close friend told me many months later, Doc fell on his radio, the sending switch was stuck, and he was on permanent send to all of us. We could hear him gurgling and moaning as he became aware that he had been shot badly. Vince and sent the Siglers nuts, but we were all helpless. The sniper picked at anyone that moved. Jordy tried and lost his life for it. We eventually had to turn on to the emergency frequency to establish communications again. Doc had remained conscious and eventually died on a part of that mountain, alone with a lad who had bravely tried to rescue him. So, uh, just to explain that, you know, on your, you have what's called a push to talk button on your radio. Yeah. And however he fell, he fell and, and landed on that push to talk so that he was broadcasting his, you know, his death and his dying was broadcast over the network for everyone to hear. These guys, um, they still have to fight. And they start, yeah, they get some intelligence. They think there's a counterattack coming in. By the way, this, this intense fighting is, is a matter of days. So everything that we're talking about is happening in, in a couple days. And now they think that there is a counterattack coming. So they dig in, they get in position, they set their machine guns up from where they think the counterattack from the Argentinians is going to come from and then they start getting mortared again hit with artillery here we go back to the book we all hit the ground again as the shell landed no sooner had I started to pick myself up when a high-pitched scream rushed into my ears a deadly sound I can still hear it today I looked down to where the shell had hit in the same area as before the ground was smoldering smoke lifting and evaporating Five meters away from the hole lay two bodies. The sight of one of them will stay with me until I die. 
His Paris mock was riddled with smoke escaping from every corner, the arms, bottom, and collar. The lad turned onto his back, screaming, Oh God, help me, help me, please. I ran down the hill in fright and concern. I dropped to my knees by the screaming soldier. His eyes met mine. Did he register me? I only saw Denzil. Denzil, the character we all loved. I wrenched my eyes to his legs. One was hanging off, ripped to shreds, the bone clearly visible. His screaming churned my stomach. It was like nothing I'd ever heard. He tried to look down at his leg. Don't fucking look this way, I barked. Lay back down, hear me? He dropped to his back, holding his thigh. Jonah Jones, a nine-squadron lad, came to my side. Vince, I'll deal with him. You see to him, he said, pointing to Craig Jones. Craig lay very close to Denzel. Clive rushed to help me. Craig hadn't any visible wounds. He lay quietly as Clive tried to talk to him. I tried to pull his smock open and pull his trousers down to check for a wound. Denzel screamed and moaned behind me, help me, help me. Jonah was busy seeing to his leg. I pulled out my knife and started to cut through Craig's denims and quilted Arctic clothing. My frantic cutting was too slow and I knew it. The doctor skidded in beside me, pulled out his scissors and started to cut through Craig's leggings. I pulled the ripped material to one side. We had reached the skin. His legs had massive lacerations in all directions, spilling muscle and bone, but there wasn't hardly any blood. The doctor shouted at me to tie his muscles together. I pulled out my field dressings and tied the lacerations together. The doctor was joined by a medic who went to Denzel. I was half conscious of cries of medic, medic, stretcher bearer all down the hill. Craig was lying still. I slid up beside him and looked into his face. It was pale with no color at all. His eyes stared into my face. You'll be okay, Craig. Just hang on, mate. Hang on. Clive held his head, stroking his forehead, repeating my words. Craig, can you hear me? I shouted. The doctor pulled and tugged frantically at Craig's clothing, trying to reach more obvious wounds. Craig, you'll be okay. Hang on. He looked at me, and a slight smile came across his face. His eyes laughed at me bright and wild his grin spread then all expression faded he faded away Craig Craig don't keep in there his eyes closed He died then and there. He was a young soldier, 20 years of age. The records will say Private Craig Jones. The doctor motioned to Bear to get him on and away. Denzel was also lifted and carried away. I fell onto my bottom. 
Jonah and Clive patted me on the shoulder. I tried to get up but fell to my knees again. I hadn't realized until then that I was crying, crying without knowing it. I cried with all the pain and sadness. It didn't seem fair. Johnny came to my side and picked me up. He picked up my weapon and started to guide me to our bunker again. I glanced at Steve and Sass. Sass was crying as well and Steve had his head buried in his hands. I stumbled to our bunker, weeping. When I sat down, Steve Wake put around his arm around me and whispered, You done a brave thing, Vince. I couldn't have gone down there after those shells landed in the same spot. You done all right, mate. His gesture didn't register. I cried with exhaustion, hatred, and pity. Craig and Denzel remain with me today. Craig who died, and Denzel who lost a leg and so nearly his life. When people write or tell of experiences of this kind, I know now that they can never really tell the facts for anyone to totally understand. For often, the reader is wrapped in his own make-believe game of war. For me personally, this five-minute experience changed my whole life and attitude towards war. Wars will always be fought, and I would go again for my beliefs, but I hope never again to see a face fade from me. It took nearly a year after this war for Craig's face to go before I slept nearly a year to wipe out Denzel's smock on fire and his scream until I die it will remain a part of me and because it is war there is no time to mourn and soon after that they are marching for their final assault on Stanley which is the capital city going back to the book after we had tabbed about 1,000 meters with wireless Ridge clearly visible above us the absence of troops and the silence of guns and Stanley began to produce some puzzled looks along the line of support company our OC shouted for a halt. We collapsed on the frosty ground to wait for orders. I looked up at the sky thinking, what now? Who's fucked up this time? Let's just get this part started. A few shouts came down the line. I leant forward and saw that the line was breaking up and the men laughing. Sergeant Mick Matthews was sitting behind me, beside me. What's going on, Mick? I asked. Fuck knows, Vince. The shouting continued as messages passed down towards us. A guy three or four positions down from us suddenly turned round and shouted, The wankers have surrendered. A white flag is flying over Stanley. Put your berets on. Index. Index. 
the last part of the message had an ironic ring because for some of the task force the whole thing had seemed like an exercise so index is a term we, we say it all the time in training when the when you want to stop the exercise you say index it's short for end mm-hmm. exercise so that's one of those things where it seemed like for some of the guys they were just on this big exercise mm-hmm. And so they literally said, hey, it's index, end of the exercise right now. Mick and I looked at each other. Bollocks, I said. We stood up to see the remains of three para coming off Longden in their red berets. Joy washed through my body. Mick and I hugged each other. Nothing more was said. The message had reached everyone. I slipped off my helmet and put on my beret, which had stayed close to hand throughout. As I stood looking down at Moody Brook, the red berets stuck out like sore thumbs against the grass. I felt proud. The beret on my head meant more than any task the army had ever thrown at me. It meant victory. The feeling is indescribable. Now, that's that, and they spend, obviously it's over, but it's not like you just get to step and and it's instantly over. They spend Mm -hmm. time there. They go through some pretty significant looting, and he talks about that a bunch, and and he kind of of comes to, he goes kind of berserk and looting, Mm -hmm. and they're all just gathering up war trophies and whatever they can find of value, and they go into this one, uh, sort of a bunkered position to loot and they on one side of the bunker It's all a bunch of weapons and the other side is other kind of more personal type items hmm. And they they have so many weapons that they don't need anymore. So they go and they start taking stuff from the other side mem uh, little Like I said personal items. I think it was and they walk out of there and then the next day they find out that The side with the weapons on it was all booby-trapped with 70 pounds of explosive. Oh, so they went in there, if they would have picked up like two or three things off of that, it was a it was a pressure plate, a pressure release. So if they would have picked up two or three things, they would have gotten killed. His, his Him and his crew would have gotten killed. And, and that's when he realizes, you know, what he talks about, he's like, I was so greedy, I wasn't even thinking anymore. Hmm. They go through that, they eventually, they get done, they ship away and eventually end up to an island and then from from a different island they fly back to back to England and here we're going back to the book we stepped off the plane at RAF Bryce Norton the next morning we were hit by the English summer in full blaze as we entered the airport lounge the doors were slung open to a screaming crowd of relatives who charged towards us my mother climbed over chairs to hug me with all the rest of my family in close pursuit my wife came up to me I was tense and made unsure by all the noise and shouting. It made me scared in a peculiar way. Karen looked hard and almost angry. Hello, Vince, was all I got from her. So he's home. Obviously, his wife was a little bit tense about some things. Back to the book. Actually, before we go back to the book, they, they do a little quick greeting with their family, but then they get back on a bus with the rest of the the uh, people the battalion members and they start driving back to their compound back to the book always very quiet on the journey the English countryside made me feel like an alien 
Johnny tapped my shoulder from behind. Vince, the trees, man. Look at them. I looked at the trees. They were part of what was making me feel like an alien. They were all in full bloom, bright green leaves in the wind. There was traffic on the roads, shops, people walking about doing their own thing. It all seemed unreal. After only three months away, it was a shock to see civilization again. The odd thing was, I felt anger. Anger at everyone for doing their own thing. It was as if something in my head was urging me to shout at them as they walked along the streets. Hey you, licking your fucking ice creams. There's a fucking lot of injured guys over there. Friends have been killed, but all you're interested in is yourselves. Just frustration, I know. The general public was concerned, but it just didn't seem like it then. I wasn't expecting a medal or even a pat on the back. I really didn't know what to expect. Even so, I found it hard to be calm. There was no way I could relax. If I had been asked to go do a tour in Ireland, I would have gone. More than anything, I felt the pinch of no longer having my friends around me. We had been together so tightly over the last few months that it was as if now I had had a set, an arm severed. The buddy-buddy system that we had needed to literally survive wasn't there anymore. And the sheltered life now seemed too far, now seemed to me far too boring to endure. I made a point of not talking about my experiences to any member of my family, including my wife, but I do remember sitting up in bed one evening, turning my wife and giving her a very mild insight into what had really happened. I was sick to death of the press's views and of the publicity of a country still high on war. I told Karen what had happened to Denzel and Jones. The blank look she gave me with a half smile told me she wasn't interested and couldn't understand me at all. I never said anything again. I tried to look at it from her point of view instead. She was sick of the war, of the army, and of me going away. Whenever I bumped into one of the lads, I seemed more at home and relaxed talking our private language with him than I did with civvies and my own family. If I had had my own way, I would have gone out on the biggest bender ever. But I knew that was the easy way out. You know, these these remind me of one soldier's war. You know, you come back and there's no doubt when you come back from war, you're going to feel some of this. Um, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to feel some of this when you see civilians walking around licking their ice cream cones. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's good. It's a, it's a rough transition. Yeah. Back to the book. There's no doubt that I was slowly unwinding over the long leave. But the boredom also gave me more time to think about my experiences. Worst of all were my nightmares about the war. At first they came nightly. Later they faded and returned intermittently. I always had the same dream. Of Denzel's smock and Jones's face passing before me. 
I would wake up in a bed so wet that a bucket of water might have been thrown over me. The nightmares lasted about six months or so. Today I can see and understand everything that has happened to me. I know now that I wasn't alone. The most comforting words I ever had to help me did not come from any of my family. My family were concerned, but could never really understand what I was going through. Those words came from my friends in the pub as we drank during leave. Johnny turned to me and said, Vince, I've had a few turns in the night, you know. That made me sit up and see clearly that I wasn't alone. And when you're not alone, you're stronger. So that's something that I know I hear from a lot of vets. And maybe you're thinking that this is something you're experiencing that no one else is. Not true. Not only are other guys going through it, other guys have always gone through it. You're not alone. Back to the book. I fully believe that we as a nation performed the most excellent of tasks. I'm fully behind the decision to send the task force, and I wouldn't hesitate to fight again for our country and its beliefs. People who whinge about the decisions taken in war they weren't involved in, to me, are the most misguided of all. The most striking events to affect me throughout the war were obviously the deaths of my friends. Eight years ago, I regarded those friends as those in two and three paras only. Now, after learning about others' experiences and after watching and reading others' accounts, I see that the whole task force was my friend. I watched a Marine sergeant in a TV documentary, his eyes showing the emotion of his story, and the sight told me we were all the same. I still feel a bit angry that the wounded went unnoticed. A propaganda film on the task force's arrival home showed only the Paris and the Marines and the Navy homecoming. Can you remember seeing the badly wounded coming through the gates? I think not. Nobody wants to see the effects of carnage. Never again will I think that war is just a game. Like they show it on TV, it is very different from how it is portrayed in books and films. We con ourselves into the killing game, don't we? I remember very clearly watching from a window of my quarters five or six kids playing a war game. Some were even dressed in combat gear and carrying small toy machine guns. I watched with interest in their tactics in attacking a cardboard box that was meant to be an enemy-held position. The two kids defending rolled over and pretended to die when overrun by the goodies. After being tigged by their friends, they got up to resume the game. From knee-high, we start to practice what is in human nature to defend and kill. The one big difference between their game and the real one 
is that you don't get up after really being shot war is the legal killing of people and can be very scary war is kill or be killed We also must remember that a lot of the command structure at junior rank level can almost be too difficult to maintain in the heat of battle. Then, what becomes a winning factor is the determination of the private soldier. His lone get-up-and-go-and-do attitude. We must take our hats off to the junior ranks of all services for they are the backbone of the war machine in that they have to kill at close range. We are lucky to have what is perhaps one of the best fighting forces in the world thanks to our system of training and to our discipline. Even today I feel frustration about the war. I was so psyched up to carry on with the fight into Stanley that the Argentinian surrender made me disappointed as well as happy. I try very hard to keep out of fist fights now, as I wouldn't like to lose my self-control. Am I alone in feeling this? Or are there hundreds or thousands of other time bombs out there? Other experienced veterans may be sympathetic to all I've said. We can only wait for the next war now to practice the art of killing again. I hope I'm there to help. Finally, I must quote a first World War veteran who told me so many years before I joined the Army. You'll like the Army, Vince, but not war. It's horrible, boy. He was right. I didn't like it. Then again, I did. And I'm going to close this book out with the beginning of this book and it reads this book is dedicated to the soldiers of three para whose comradeship and determination throughout the campaign make the author proud to have served with them so that the members of three para who never returned are not forgotten their names and ages at death in action are listed below. Private Richard Absalon, Military Medal, 19 years old. Private Gerald Bull, 18. Private Jason Burt, 17. Private John Crow, 21. Private Mark Dodsworth, 24. Private Anthony Greenwood, 22. Private Neil Groves, 18. Private Peter Hedeker, 
22. Lance Corporal Peter Higgs, 23. Corporal Stephen Hope, 27. Private Timothy Jenkins, 19. Private Craig Jones, 20. Private Stuart Lang, 20. Lance Corporal Christopher Lovett, 24. Corporal Keith McCarthy, 27. Sergeant Ian McKay, Victoria Cross, 29. Corporal Stuart McCaughlin, 27. Lance Corporal James Murdoch, 25. Lance Corporal David Scott, 24. Private Ian Scrivens, 17. Corporal Alex Shaw, 25. Private Philip West, 19. And you notice those names, those men, their ages, and their ranks. They're all they're all junior ranks. The one sergeant, Sergeant Ian McKay, who was awarded the Victoria Cross for storming a 50 caliber machine gun position but the rest of those men are privates and lance corporals and corporals young men and as kipling pointed out there're no plaster saints by any stretch but damn they might not be saints but I've known men like these And I've seen them with my eyes. And as I have said, and as this tale of the Falklands confirms once again, war is hell, and it's a hell that can bring out the worst in men but it can also bring out the best. And don't forget these young men 
who like so many others answered the call and fought and died in that awful place to protect their brothers And furthermore, and if you read this book, you will realize that we all have a little bit more to give. Mentally and physically, you can go further, you can push harder, you can be more ruthless if you have to be, and you can also show more mercy. You can be better. I can be better. We can all be better. And we most often get better not from the easy things and not from the good times, but from the hard times and the challenges and the suffering in life that pushes you to your breaking point and demands that you give absolutely everything you have but you have to keep going so no matter what keep going And I think that's all that I've got for tonight. It's a rough one. Yeah. It's crazy how um how it got that crazy, that vicious in like that short period of time. It, it is, and it and it, we we got to remember that. That's what we have one perspective from one squad in one platoon. And there was, you know, the story of two pair, the one where the battalion commander, yeah. H. Jones, won the Victoria Cross, by the way. What about that? What about that story? Yeah. And not to mention the Royal Marines that were down there as well. What about their stories? Yeah. And that's the thing that just. It's I still can't wrap my head around the amount of untold stories that there are and and not just not just the fact of the stories Mm. but to think that these because this is a this battle was a a very short time compared to Vietnam or World War two or World War one or even the wars that we've been fighting today that have been going on for years and years and years but it's not so much that the story that 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 like we're missing the story, but these people existed everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And they exist everywhere. And and yeah, it's 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 an incredible. To take a look at the book, buy the book, and read it. And it's I actually 
I got into some of the graphic stuff. Some of the some of the interaction to them when they're not in combat is actually it's real crude, mm-hmm. and I didn't you know I didn't cover much of it. Not that you know, I wanted to get to more of the combat concentration. That's kind of I didn't realize that I had I didn't cover as much as sort of just the straight up crude behavior that mm-hmm. they that they. I mean they're on the boat for a while. They're drinking. They're getting drunk when they're coming home. It's there's some there's some some crude behavior and and things that are taking place uh, and that's kind of why I, I jumped on the opportunity to read Tommy by by Kipling because that's totally true then mm-hmm. you know what they say in kind of our way of saying that in the SEAL teams we would say this we, that guy is a in case of war break glass kind of guy Oh yeah. Meaning we don't want him around all the time. We want to keep him over here on the side. <laughs> in the glass. But, yeah. but yeah, if something happens, glass. yeah, break glass and we'll get this <laughs> this frogman out. Now, what's what's jacked up about that is that's that played more of a role when I was first in the SEAL teams and the more the the older I got and the more mature I got, the more I realized like that's that's okay, but it doesn't really work. What you need is to have someone that you can have out of the glass yeah, yeah, and that learns. And what you have to do as a leader is you take those guys that instead of putting those guys in a glass jar or behind a, in a, in a glass um, box somewhere and keep mm-hmm. them there in case of war, what you do is you do what you do with a freaking wild dog. Mm. You have to train them. You have to bring them out. You have to socialize them amongst the humans <laughs> yeah. so that they can so that they can interact because yeah. a guy that you have to keep in, you know, in behind a glass barrier from the rest of the world the chances of you needing him for that type of situation are pretty minimal so what about all the other situations that he'd be beneficial for so what you have to do as a leader is teach those guys that have the attitude of you know I'm just I'm just a nothing but a straight warrior don't care about anything else I'm here to go to war otherwise leave me alone Mm. what you want to do is you want to get those guys out into the world socialize them like a good attack dog that that's not gonna bite anything in front of it. it's gonna mm. actually bite what you want it to bite and then you have something that's a much more valuable not only for you as a leader but for them yeah because they have a much better opportunity so there's still a few guys left in the old mold of in case of war break glass but most of the guys now are are actually more versatile than that yeah. and, and I'll tell you when I was young I was probably falling in that category. <laughs> You're the break guy. I wasn't exactly the guy you wanted to uh, throw out in front of the admiral to look at, right? And say, oh, this is our model guy right here. Yeah. It's, you know, it wouldn't have been that way. Now, the older I got, the more I recognized how important having that both sides of the of the coin covered. And you couldn't just be a freaking rampaging berserker all the time. You had to actually be a professional. Sure. You had to be a professional. Yeah. And so I definitely had my share of time spent in that zone mm-hmm. back in the day. But what's good is I think guys knew that about me. Mm-hmm. And that therefore, when I came up to him and said, hey, man, look, we got we to do better than that. Or, hey, we, we can't be acting like that. They knew that I wasn't coming to them from a from a uh, what's that word from the ivory tower yeah. I wasn't looking down on them like oh, I can't believe you'd act that way right, right. We don't act that way. We're naval representatives. I wasn't coming to it like that right. I was coming to and hey, we're professionals. We got to get we want to get hired to do jobs 
we want to kill bad guys we got to get missions we got to get mission approval Mm -hmm. those were the things that that you know I kind of passed on to to my guys was hey that's cool be a frogman but be a disciplined frogman be a frogman that can represent and I think that's another thing in the book when there's no war going on how are they you know they're 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 kind of maniacs you know yeah and and then when the war breaks out they go even more maniac style and it's almost like they get into that mode of like oh who cares anyways yeah. we're, we're gonna die we're, we're gonna die we just you know who cares right. but after you go to war for an extended period of time you're like actually you're not gonna die yeah. actually there's a decent chance you're gonna live mm. and there's a decent chance that you need to continue to build you know the the reputation of the seal teams not just as we're killers but we're professionals yeah so and we should have a reputation of both and we do by the way i think so professional killers is right <laughs> um but yeah it's a great book there's a lot to learn from it there's a lot to learn again i, I that that the way that they're going from peacetime and again i know that they were doing tours in Ireland at the time and that was no joke and they took casualties in Ireland and there was many uh, soldiers killed in Northern Ireland but that wasn't comparable to what they went through in the Falklands so it was interesting to see how they handled approaching combat for the first time yeah another part that I think these books really bring to light is just the physical conditions that that they go into. Even talking talking to you guys when you guys talk about how hot it is, then every once in a while you'll add a detail like, yeah. "Oh yeah, so I'm like, you know, all my clothes are all wet from my sweat." Mm-hmm. And usually that's not part of the movie when you watch yeah. the movie, yeah. you know, or like these guys, his, his feet are falling off, yeah. you know, because it's cold and I numb. was sitting in a combat outpost in Ramadi. And it was nighttime, right? The coolest part of the day. And I, I wasn't doing anything. And I hadn't been doing anything in a while. I was literally sitting in a combat outpost. You know, the boys were out in an overwatch position and I was back there. I'd been coordinating. But I did it. It wasn't that, it wasn't that established of a combat outpost yet. So I still had all my gear on. But I was just sitting there. I'd been sitting there for, let's call it two, three, four hours. And I was sitting there and I, I just kind of put my, I was sitting down and I angled my, back to like a 45 degree angle and I was kind of looking at the ground kind of resting yeah. a little bit yeah, yeah. and as I looked down I was full athletic sweat dripping off me like that fast and I wasn't doing anything yeah yeah that's just that's the bait that's where you start yeah that's where you start not to mention the guys legs getting blown off all this stuff all these yeah man yeah it's crazy yeah it's um the physical and the other big thing is the physical conditioning that you need to be prepared for is is humping with a rucksack on yeah that's a big deal they, you know that you know they don't show a lot of that no in any kind of military training they don't just show it they don't yeah. show it enough they should yeah they should I mean we just did another trip up to Yosemite and yeah. we, we got our boots 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 <laughs> boots on sure and it's it's if you're not conditioned for that it's gonna be hard yeah. and you can make it through a day yeah Maybe you can make it through two days, but also you're not carrying. I was telling my my kids up there, up in the mountains, you're not carrying any weight compared to what you carry with uh, when you have gear. When you yeah. have the, when you go tactical, yeah, you don't have. You probably have thirty pounds, maybe. Mm-hmm. If you're just if you're just camping or whatever, you got a couple. You got a couple liters of water. Mm-hmm. You got a sleeping bag and a ground pad. You got some 
trail mix maybe a little bit more food but you're talking 30 40 pounds tops yeah you get geared up bro I would weigh guys before we'd send them out on training operations I'd wham training operations mm. they their their rocks would weigh like 110 pounds your gear alone your your body armor helmet uh, wh- ammo magazines you know magazines and ammo yeah. grenades you're you're 60 70 pounds then you put water in that you, you're talking I think I think I weighed like 310 or something with my gear on <laughs> seriously like Robocop yeah no, Robocop's still heavy on, on Rogue, I think it was part two where he shocks himself because he wants to get rid of the, the messed up directives he got given he falls down Right, he's unconscious, mm-hmm. and then they're like, "Hey, we gotta help him." They try to pick him up. Oh, he's too heavy. heavy to move. Yeah, yeah, that that Same actually thing. happened to. Uh, we were on a training exercise in TU Bruiser, <laughs> and I got put down. They said, "Hey, Jocko, you're dead." So I laid down, <laughs> and I just laid there. And Leif came over to throw me in the back of the Humvee. <laughs> I was like RoboCop down there. <laughs> so Leif got a couple buddies, and he's like, "Hey, guys, help me move Jocko." Still not moving. Dead weight. And Jocko. then they're like, "Okay." Yep. You know you were like making an extra effort to be dead weight. Oh yeah, for you sure. You know, like you're like you I'm, know you do I'm that? fully participating yeah. in the training <laughs> exercise. I wanted those guys yeah. be, to be prepared to put a grenade in my mouth and yeah. leave me there. So get some. Awesome. Well, speaking of lots of stories, sure. Um, maybe you could tell some stories about. How, how to support this podcast sure, I'd be happy to no hey, no short hey, stories hey, <laughs> hey hey did did you get into drinking pomegranate white tea and subsequently Jocko white tea because your wife is a Brit and no she's into tea she no, turned you I, on to I, tea she didn't really because they drink tea with milk and I don't yeah but you know hey you can details, give her credit but details. she doesn't get credit for that one does she, she drink a lot of tea too she drinks what? tea yeah she tea drinker Put the kettle she on. says, "She says, cup of tea, cup of tea cure anything." She says, "No oh, cup of tea." <laughs> who was the guy who said Robitussin cured everything? It's the same thing like that. I don't know who that was. Yeah, I think it's like I don't know, Chris Rock. I something. don't remember specifically where I got the first cup of Jocko White tea from, but I do remember that it was in the desert when I was I was at the training command and I was would be giving the debriefs or sitting through the guy's briefs. And yeah. we'd be going on like two, three, four hours of sleep. So you needed a little bit of kick. Yeah. And somebody, somewhere I got some ju- some tea. Yeah. It wasn't yet Jocko White it tea. It was just pom- regular was, pomegranate yeah. white tea. Yeah. And yeah, that's where I first, and I, I drank it. I was like, mm-hmm. Ooh, this is nice. Yeah, this is nice. The cold one. Yeah. Wait, was it cold? Yeah, Probably. Yeah. Huh? yeah, well, it definitely had it cold because you're in the desert. You don't want to drink hot tea unless you're British. Yeah, yeah, counterproductive. They'd be drinking hot tea no matter what. <clears throat> they don't even drink iced tea. Uh, I don't really like hot tea that much. Yeah. The That whole island, they don't really like iced tea. Like, you can't go into a restaurant. I'll have some iced tea. They look at you like you're weird. Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Which I've been looked at many times there. Yeah. For being I mean, weird. Let's, let's face it. You, you're kind of weird, bro. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. What you so, got? If we want to support ourselves, first off, I'm going to talk about my little story. It's not short story, long one. No, please. Just kidding. Remember I told you I got into kettlebells? Compress. I got the Onyx kettlebells, right? So I, uh-huh. the first ones I got, I get all the, the designer ones. They're yeah, cooler. My opinion. You. Yeah. I don't think I've ever... Yeah, I used the regular ones before at other gyms. But anyway, I get the, the cool ones. Right. The ones that someone takes a picture of me and I have them, I look like extra cool with the 
primal. You can see how different our thought patterns are. Yeah, in our yeah, you're here to win. I get it, <laughs> and I can dig it fully. But I got the chimp ones. Those are what one pood. Okay, whatever the sixteen kilograms. Went up to the werewolf. Just the other day, I ordered the gorilla. Hmm. What's that one? Seventy something pounds. Oh, good. For one, so I got a pair. They incorporate that in. I'm getting stronger, man. I'm getting good at the kettlebells. You're gonna need them 88s, like I got. Yeah. Wait. What is the one that that? It's Bigfoot, right? The I don't know what one? that is, but my the biggest kettlebells that I currently have. Yeah. Are 40 kilograms. Yeah, that's like yeah. 88 Nine. pounds. Well, it's 90 something because 2.2 pounds per kilogram. Okay. So it's like <laughs> we can do the math if you want, but nonetheless, that's heavy. Uh, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know if I'm ready for that one, given my current exercise program with them. I guess you can do a basic. Maybe we should start doing math exercises. Yeah, yeah maybe. Or bring a calculator or whichever. <laughs> Either way, that's the one I got. And so, so look, hey, I'm going to recommend it. If you're into kettlebells, you want to, you know, get your kettlebells on. Get the on it ones. They're cooler. That's my opinion. Cool. Anyway, a lot of cool stuff on there. That. I got a jump rope and stuff like that, too. Um, you know what else I did? Hundred burpees in ten minutes. Oh, Brandon Pickworth, where you at? Yeah, yeah. So you remember last time <laughs> we mentioned did it. it? Yeah, I, I did it. Brandon, just so you know, Echo is now he notoriously bad cardio. Nah, now not they're not like, like that anymore. I'm giving you credit. I'm yeah. giving you credit. But still, we could use that as sort of a statement to say if Echo could do it, come on, Brandon. Yeah, actually, I think the statement is look how far Echo has come. Look how far Echo. I think has that's come. the statement. We'll make. I just made it. There you Look go. Look how Boom. far echoes have come. So, that he can do a hundred. Bur- a lot of people think a hundred burpees in ten minutes is a joke. Actually, yeah, I could. I could dig it. I mean, I've been doing burpees for for a while. Not that kind. You know, not the kind. My they're just in my routine. So oh, I don't yeah, do yeah, that yeah. many, but I'm familiar with them. So I'm like, okay, you can. You know how you can kind yeah. of gauge. Like, okay, I do this many. So what would a hundred take out of me? Yeah. You know, can you I know do, what you that? do forty, thirty, twenty, ten? Yeah. So just how I that. how I did it was twenty five. One minute rest, 25, one minute rest, 25, one minute rest, 15, and then like a two minute, minute and a half maybe, I don't know, something like that, give or take, and then uh, 10. And actually, sorry, 11. I did 101 burpees, and it was nine minutes flat. That's good. Yeah. Brandon, what you got? Here's <laughs> what I found. Here's, I don't know if my cardio is good or bad. It's better than it has been it's better I think, than in it a long been, time. Yeah. Just in general, even yeah. jujitsu and other stuff. What's so, the other stuff all of a sudden? Well, you, know, I'm, you know, when you run and, oh. I don't know, you know, get nuts. Groceries. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> hey, life, man. Sometimes life throws physical challenges life. at you. Either way. So, yeah, I did one-on-one in nine minutes flat. Um, what it was was I wasn't breathing as hard as maybe you might think. Like so you that, gone that wasn't the 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 issue. wasn't the breathing. It was like just boom, push up and uh, squat oh, and push oh, up and jump the, and push, uh, the lactic acid. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But where'd you feel it? legs? Weird. Yeah, legs fully, shoulders, hmm. not chest. Like I think you know, doing a push up one every you know second isn't yeah. that much for me. But strangely, my shoulders and this part, the, like, what do you call these? The serrats. They were, like, sore the next day in a weird way. It was weird, man. Nonetheless, yeah. Well, that it's, proves that burpees are a good exercise. Yes, fully. Got you some funky uh, work out there. Yeah. It's, it's good. And then so I go on YouTube. I see this one. A guy does 100 in a row. I'm like, dang. Because 25 was, I didn't know. I was going to be like, hey, I'm going to do as many as I can. Did, how long did it take him to do 100 in a row? 
uh, three minutes and 33 seconds, if I'm not Dang, mistaken. That's, that's credit. Yeah. Credit. You know what's, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. I think it's a thing. I don't know if it's a thing or not. That's why I'm asking the question. Okay, so what really is a burpee? I mean, as far as like, okay, so when I first started doing burpees, I wouldn't a do burpee a burpee is you, your chest touch the ground and you jump okay. up in the air. Okay. So what about my hands? Do they have to go above my head or yes, can they be here? Technically, yes. Technically, oh. it's a little clap over the head. Oh, a clap. So what do you mean over the head? Like yeah. technically has to be above the head. So if I go like yeah. this or does it have to be? Because uh, I see you guys doing this. I do a little bit of everything and depending on how tired I am. Okay. If you see when I'm really tired, yeah, my yeah, clap really. is barely happening and it's happening like, it's like a six inches in front of my belly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So here, but, let me. But if you want to be like technical. Yeah. Oh, I mean, a really technical, perfect burpee would be like both hands clapping up above your head as you're yeah. six inches in the air. Yeah. You yeah. can't do too many of those. Well, you can't do as many of those, though. No. I'm here to tell you. Not at all. And that's Sp- kind of the, the point. difference between the dynamic jump, like a high jump, uh-huh. and not a dynamic jump is real big. Huge. Huge. And yeah. so where's the line? Yeah. So, uh, um, For me, here's the line. Get your hands above your head. Get your feet off the ground. That's it, right? Yeah. I think that's... Yeah, I dig yeah. it. I, I agree. Because otherwise, you're like, "Hey, you didn't jump uh, three inches." Yeah. But what if you know? Because if you want to do that, what you do is you put your your four, you put your one thirty five on the ground, a barbell with one thirty five on it, and yeah. you hop over that thing each time. Chest to the ground on one side, chest to the ground on the other side, chest gotcha. to the ground. That's another gotcha. way. If you're gonna require, I like it when you can't cheat. Right, you can't cheat that. Yeah. Right, you have to jump over it. Yeah, I know. Dang. That's what's cool about like burpee pull ups. You, you, you yeah. got to get chest to the ground. Right. I don't care how you do it, chest to the ground and, and get your chin over the bar. That I don't care what okay. you do in between those two. Yeah, that's a burpee pull up pretty much. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, then I have to be honest then. Here's my disclaimer. The push-up, hey, I didn't touch, touch my chest to the ground. You need it. Like, you oh, need okay. I mean, was it like was it like an incomplete? Probably some of them were like uh, a half. I mean, I, I guess I don't do I'm not like every single time ch- right. ch- yeah. Here's the thing. It's to your discretion, right? It's like well, it's like that's you loose. know when you well, didn't do a let, burpee. Let's face it. If we wanted to, you know, get some Guinness Book of World's Record yeah. scenario, then sure. Yeah. But we we I think you're right. You know what a burpee is. Yeah. I know do what it. a burpee is. Yeah. Get it right. Yeah. So <laughs> mine and just to kind of in the spirit of honesty, so I didn't touch my because chest. here's the thing. If I was to. If in, on the push-up part, if you touch your chest over every time, you actually slow down enough that it's not hitting your cardio as much. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I guess add it up. Yeah, I guess. And you know what I saw though when I saw the guy doing the burpees, he was on a, um, I think it was just a regular gym floor, maybe a mat or something, and he was doing it. And after a while, he starts banging his chest. Like, oh, he's so I'm like, oh, you're getting a bounce on the bench. Same thing. Yeah, getting a little bounce. So I'm thinking, you know what? That could be easier for me. Yeah. If I did it on a mat, I think it'd be easier than having to stop your body weight and yeah, not touch. Sure. You know, but it's gonna be what you're used to for sure. But I didn't touch my chest, and there were like four of them that I didn't put like four because when I started the set, I'm like, oh shoot, those you know two oh. or three i didn't put my hands above my head so I, then Restart. I re- yeah you know so maybe like four or five of them didn't technically count but i feel like if i would have put my hands above my head on those four it wouldn't have made a difference that's what i think but if i'm like you know the kind where i'm filming at the muster you know i'm mm. filming this girl she's doing the perfect burpee mm. while i'm filming her chest to the ground in fact when she went chest to ground her hands came up off the ground oh. just for like a second yeah. i'm like dang this girl's getting the whole what do they world. call those i think they call those game day push-ups i don't know okay. why i, I don't yeah. maybe i'm wrong 
Yeah. Maybe I just call him that. Yeah. Which is maybe. weird because I don't even have a game day. <laughs> every day is game day. <laughs> yeah, that, so that's why you call him that. You do that every day. But either way, she's doing that. And then she's going into the, the and her hands are straight in the air. Mm. Like she's straight up putting this, effort was into Was this in the San Diego, cross, uh, San Diego no, muster? No, 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 Texas. I, I put the clip in, oh, in okay. the video. Okay. Slow motion. I'll check it out. Yeah. And she, she had the perfect form. Full beast mode. Full on. And I'm thinking... When I see that compared to the 101 <laughs> that I did, no, night and day, man. They're going to be like, hey, he's not doing this whole yeah, part he ain't right doing here. That thing. My hands are going like this. They're going like this. So they're above my head. You know what? But I'm going like this. Maybe Brandon you know? Pickworth is doing 8 inch or 12 yeah, inch man. vertical leap on each one like a beast. And yeah. we're calling him out. And he's actually. I know he's us. doing it the correct <laughs> way. And, yeah. Sorry, Brandon, if that's the case. All right. All good. Well, the goal is now 100. I'm going to follow the protocol. Oh, I know when get I'm to doing 100. A, yeah, like in a row. In a row. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be, that'd be good. Yeah, I'm gonna follow the protocol for sure. I'll, I'll I'll report back. Anyway, back to the kettlebells. That's a that's a good one. The jump rope stuff. That's a good one. On the on it ones. That's the cool ones. My opinion. Just go on there. Check it out. Go on slash jocko. Boom. Support yourself and the podcast. Also, good way to support when you buy these books that Jocko reviews. That I chime into every once in a while. Go to our uh, the website jockopodcast.com. You chime in much today. Yeah, man, I was all listening. Kind of a to heavy it. one. Yeah, heavy, and I don't have nothing. To, so you know what part I was gonna chime in? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, you gotta look I respect at me like your that, decision, Brad. but I respect your decision not, not to, to chime got in. Got it, got it. Yeah, well, you know how you're like it was at the end anyway, where, where you were like, "This is just one story." Yeah. You know, it, you take and it's a literally a sliver. Really, yeah, it is. It's a sliver. It's well, one guy and one yeah, story. It's one guy. There was four or five thousand. British servicemen down there. Yeah, it's one five yeah. one four thousandth. So this this was my comparison. You, you know when you're driving in traffic, or on the street, whatever mm-hmm. the freeway, and all you see is cars. Oh my god, infinite cars. Traffic is everywhere. Just cars and cars and cars, and that's nothing new. In fact, it's kind of irritating, really. But if you just take one little step, like in your mind, and and look in the car, and look, that's a person in there. A person. And sometimes two people in there, mm-hmm. sometimes little little family. Each one of those people has their whole life story, all the little ups and downs and special things, and you know, challenges, challenge, struggles, struggles triumphs, all that stuff. Tragedies. Each one of those yeah. little things, there's a little guy in there, and and even then, that's nobody compared to everybody. So that's the analogy I was going to make, but seems kind of trivial, you know, compared to like. <laughs> Guys on the freeway. I like how you're starting to self-police. Yeah, I got to self-police, man. <laughs> uh, anyway, back to these books. If yeah, if you if you want to get any of these books, one or more, whatever, they're listed by episode on the website, jockopodcast.com. And and by the way, we started off today before we hit record, re- record, <laughs> record. Sure. I said to Echo, you know how you heard the bo- the, the the what's that saying? Don't judge a book by its cover. The cover of this book, you can judge it by. It's called Excursion to Hell by Lance Corporal Vincent Bramley. And the picture on the cover looks like hell. It looks like it's a picture of him. It's blown up real big. But, yeah, you can judge a book by its cover. You can tell it's going to be a rough story. Yeah. Looks like he took a straight-up excursion to hell on that cover. But if you want this book, go to jockpodcast.com. Set a little tab on the top, you know, the top menu, whatever, books from podcast chuckle podcast books whatever it's called boom they're listed there by episode click through there get it through there good way to support yourself of course and uh and the podcast takes you to amazon also 
Or if you do other shopping. Any other shopping. Oh, that's a bonus. Bonus. What if you buy something massive? Good. That still supports. Supports more. Big time. Yeah, like what? Like Like a 100 terabyte hard drive. How much does that cost? Like four to five grand. Oh. Not 45 grand, four to five. Oh, okay. So like 40, depends which one you get. Or like a lawnmower. Can you buy a lawnmower from Amazon? I think you can buy anything on Amazon. You can now, huh? Uh, yeah. What do they do? They they come with a big forklift truck and be lawnmowers like, hey. aren't that big, dude. Well, no, no, no. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm thinking driving lawnmower. Oh, So yeah. what do they do? Mm, that's a good they back question. it up. Or no, is no, your no, lawnmower? You one. I don't know. You probably can't. Maybe. Okay, a treadmill. I know you can get a treadmill from Yeah, treadmills are pretty big. Well, either way, you can do your shopping, boom, click through there. Takes like two seconds. Small action, really. Big reaction <laughs> by way of support. I, I actually have been thinking that that is actually not the best <laughs> analogy that yeah, you've been using for you, like you so would, long. You would think that, but you'd be wrong. I think a better, you ever heard of the, the expression death by a thousand cuts? Yes. It's more like that, even though it's life by a thousand clicks. Clicks. Sure. Yeah. Support by a thousand clicks. Something like um, that. Yeah, man, I dig it. Because they all add up together. Yeah. Because the sodium's little, but it's big, but you have to Dude. join it with all the other ones. Yeah, so now you have a bunch of little sodiums. Boom, huge reaction. <laughs> huge support. <laughs> widespread, huge support right. by this little action from this. You know what it is? Actually, the sodium's better. Because oh, look, man. if I'm clicking through, I'm, a listen, I'm listening to this podcast, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to support. I'm going to buy one of these books. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, buy lawnmowers, treadmill, whatever. I click through the website. Just that two seconds of going to the website first, clicking through. That's like so much potential in my click, just like the, the sodium. So much potential energy in there, especially when okay. you mix it with the water. You mix it with the Amazon, the click, boom, support, you follow. I, we can move on. Fuck, yeah, there you go. <laughs> See? Back to my point. Uh, anyway. I apologize to everyone for egging that on in some manner. <laughs> yeah, well, I respect your extreme ownership uh, in the situation. It's my fault. <laughs> Just know what you're going to do to fix it next time. Or you could, sub- sub- you could subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play if you haven't already. I think it seems, well, I don't want to say it seems obvious, but. Yeah, if you don't, you should. If you haven't, yeah, that's be a good cool way to support. Did. Yeah, cool. Stay updated, all that stuff. Also on YouTube, subscribe to that one. I've been putting some stuff. This on is kind of weird to me because we don't have that many YouTube subscribers. I, I forget how many I, I looked, I but it's not a ton. It's not as many people as listen to the podcast. Yeah, 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 for sure. But not a lot of people are like on YouTube. You know, oh, okay. I'm gonna watch. You know, Jock on YouTube. Yeah, like that. You're less compelled to do that, especially if you're not on YouTube. Just to. But begin what if you with. miss some of them deleted scenes? Yeah, you know that's something, but. <laughs> Consider like if you never go. I I was working with a a group this last week, and they're full on caught up on the podcast. Every single episode, legit dudes getting after it. And I mentioned the deleted scene that came out, and they there were three of them. None of them had seen it. Oh, see, none of them had seen it, and that's that's a good scene. It's funny, anyways. Yeah, I know I use bad language, but. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of refreshing, bro. You know how like you can cut loose. You're like, oh, Jack was always. On, you were off. No, you were on. You were in a different. I was way. on. I was going off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So subscribe to the YouTube yeah. channel if, if you're on YouTube, or if you if you're thinking about getting on YouTube, go ahead and start there. Subscribe. I, we can be your first subscription, and don't think that it's a. How much pain. is a subscription to? It's, 
nothing. One click. Oh man, that's one click. That's no, a good deal. no money. Just click one click. And here's the thing: it's a total non-commitment situation. You can literally subscribe, and ten seconds later, you can unsubscribe. Then you can do that again. You can do that as many times as you want. It's like so easy. So it's really uh, that's right. a small action, big reaction situation. Another one. Also. Jocko as a store. See, that time I stayed quiet. I went <laughs> get lowered into your <laughs> See, trap. just moved on. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But um, actually, back to the YouTube real quick. There's, oh. other st- <laughs> There's other stuff other than just a video version of the podcast. That's yeah, kind of the right, point. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah. One of the points. There's other little videos that you put together. Sure. Excerpts, we like Excerpts, to call them. Sure. Some people call them McNuggets. Sure, Jocko McNuggets. Yeah, they're on there too. <laughs> anyway, Jocko as a store. It's called Jocko Store. JockoStore.com. There's some shirts on there. There's some... Travel mugs on there, some bumper stickers on there. I reap there. We were out of bumper stickers. I, I didn't know that. Anyway, we got some more on there. There are some rash guards on there. Dope. Yeah. Rash and guards. there are some hats on there. Are they there? They should be. <laughs> you said that last time. <laughs> I know, bruh. And I still have, a, I think, a day. No, you, no, no. Today, they should be on. You owe me Otherwise, nine hats, by right, the way. You got it. Check. Um, yeah, so yeah, there it is. And I'm not saying to support this podcast, buy our stuff. I'm not saying that. I'm saying go on the website. Check out the stuff on there. Canadian yarn art. This stuff sells itself. Yeah. See, now you're not getting my references. No. That's and and I was born in Canada, too, so that's kind of, kind of off. But you're not a Tenacious D fan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man. All good. Canadian uh, yarn art. All, wait, we don't sell that. No, we it don't. Sells <laughs> it sells and itself. And so does this stuff. Maybe we potentially. should some Canadian yarn art. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, go on there. Check it out. If you like something, get something. Good way to support. Also, Psychological Warfare. What Psychological Warfare is, if you don't know, it is an album with tracks. Jocko tracks and what he does is on the tracks he's talking to you each track and he's to each track he's talking to you about different stuff <laughs> weaknesses different weaknesses there you go. so really this is what you need this is the different album. stuff doesn't cut it yeah yeah because Jocko's talking about you true. about the type of toothpaste that he uses right right no I didn't Nobody say cares about that <laughs> well maybe true Dep- depends you know how the, there's a controversy about fluoride being in the toothpaste you know I'm just saying God, if that's I'm, important. I'm, I'm really egging you on today. I'm just I saying. I apologize, everyone. You brought it up, bro. <laughs> anyway, what it's really for this album is in your campaign against weakness. Mm, yeah. Um, I, that's the new phrase. It's not journey anymore. It's campaign against oh, re- yeah, weakness. Like Andy Goodbread. He gave me that one. Because right I don't like saying journey oh, that much. Someone remember? actually messaged you and said hey quit saying journey say campaign against, against weakness, weakness which is actually from the podcast which well, is legit layers <laughs> big time anyway thanks Andy for that one but that's the one I'm using for right now yeah. until like a better one comes up if that's even possible no, so in your campaign against weakness every single day for the rest of your life now that's you're in the game right now it's for the rest of your yeah, life the campaign lasts forever yeah there's, there's no discharge from the war? Yeah, man. Dang, so, layers lay- coming out big time. <laughs> anyway, so if you're trying to wake up, you know, early every day or, you know, five days a week, however long, you know, however much, and you got that day where you're supposed to wake up early and you don't want to, you just don't feel like it. That's really the thing. You don't feel like it, you know? So Jock is there for, uh, for you with a little spot. Diet stuff, procrastination stuff. 
workout stuff, creativity stuff. Mm. That's a big one. And I don't listen to the creativity one. That's because you feel like you're all creative. No, but here's the thing. I'm like one of those things. You know how like, you know how like, let's say you had a, like a a pimple or something. A zit. I know I'm going deep, but (sighs) if you have a zit, some people they're like, I'm going to pop the zit. Some people they're like, no, leave it alone. Let it go away. You see what I'm saying? So I'm like the I'm the latter when it comes to creativity. I'm like, man, I'm not creative. I'm at a creative block. Don't don't force it. Don't like get Jocko on here telling me pragmatically, by the way. But still, just get Jocko, creative. Do it now. <laughs> yes, Think no, of a good idea. Thankfully, it's a little bit more than that. But you know, that's kind of the philosophy. I'm not saying that's the best way. In fact, I manufacture inspirado. You're missing yeah. another good tenacious D reference yeah. that I just made. But that's kind of the good thing about this is that that's not what it is. No, you know how like you'll explain like, you know, part of it. And this is a total paraphrasing situation. But you said it in a really good way uh, before when you're like memorize the feeling after your workout oh, or something yeah, yeah, like that's that. Good. See, that's, that's good. like that's not you're not inspri- inspiring me to go work out. You're kind of pragmatically telling yeah, me like this is how, this you, is how you mentally wage a, an effective war on that little weakness there. That's what it is. Anyway tracks doing this for all kinds of situations it's called psychological warfare jocko willing that's a good one uh also i have some other options now mm-hmm. if you want to kind of support this podcast you can check out originmain.com for your jujitsu needs we are now unified fully with origin unified. made in america like me I would say like Echo, but Echo is actually made in Canada. No, I was technically made in America. Oh, okay, cool. I was just made delivered. in America, made in America, yeah. like Echo and me, and delivered. Wait, I was delivered in Canada. Can they get stuff from Origin in Canada? Yeah. You can well, get there it, it is. Boom! Just like me, then. <laughs> okay, so there you go. OriginMain.com for your jujitsu needs and check them out. Also, if you want to check us out live. If you want to check out Origin live. Now, what kind of company is telling you, hey, come to our factory and see what we're all about? You know what kind of ca- company? Our company. <laughs> we're going to be up there in Farmington, Maine, August 23rd. Come on up. It's too late to enter into the Origin camp, the immersion camp. If you haven't signed up for that, you missed it. You'll have to do it next year. But on August 23rd, we're going to be up there. We're going to be cruising. We'll be hanging out. We're going to be getting after it up at the factory you can come and see what that's all about uh also and i'll 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 just i'll just put this out i was kind of hesitating but listen we have some supplements coming for you as soon as we as soon as as soon as i started with pete who is my partner at origin as soon as we kind of started talking as soon as we as soon as it looked like we were going to solidify a deal we started we started uh, he's got he's got a little supplement line, mm-hmm. which gives the opportunity gave the opportunity gives the opportunity for me to design the supplements. So a little while back, we had that opportunity, sure. designed them, made them, went on them, legit, and uh, we got the formulas down, and we're gonna ramp up production now. So in a little while, you're gonna see. You can see the Jocko line of supplements coming out. <laughs> interesting. Very interesting. So Echo's had his little bit coming in. Mm-hmm. We're on them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, they're good to go. 
So, anyways, we'll, I'm gonna let. What I need to do, what we need to watch out for, mm. is the demand. So, what we're gonna do is we're gonna put them up, so you can order them. They won't be out until mid September, mm-hmm. but if you order them earlier, you order them, the better we can support you for right. supporting us. Yeah, kind of like the book situation. Almost. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's that. Also, Jocko White Tea. If you want to support the podcast and support yourself, and if you want to deadlift in the neighborhood of 8,000 pounds, you can get Jocko White Tea. If you don't want to deadlift 8,000 pounds, that's cool. Drink something else. Yeah, yeah. Drink something else. That's that's fine. If you want to support your brain, we got books. If you want to support your kid's brain, get them the book. And, and the brain life. and their body and their life. life. Get them yeah. way of the warrior kid. I get, it's cool now kids come up to me and I sign their books they're all fired up so they're changing yeah you will change your kid will get on the path no kidding yeah and it's good for the parent too because you can reference that book in little situations you know it's legit yeah it's good even my youngest daughter her friends are reading it and so they come over and they're like (laughs) they're they're excited yeah so that's cool too Uh, yeah give it to your kids whoever your neighborhood's kids Whatever, give it to all, all the kids you know so they can get stronger and faster and smarter and better, which is a really big thing to give a kid. Yes, everything pretty oh, much. You know what I'm going to give is. you? I'm going to make you stronger, faster, stronger, and better, yeah. smarter, smarter, a human being. Yeah, yeah. Is that a good thing to give someone? Yes, it is, so do it. Uh, also, if you want the first edition of Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual, you got to order it soon. And there's so many questions that I get asked all the time are in this book. They're answered in this book, Food Intake. Yeah, workouts they're in there a lot of them yeah they're in there all everyone that asked me about all different martial arts where should I start it's all in there yeah. sleep what about sleep it's in there how do you wake up so early it's in there rest and recovery it's in there all this stuff is in there it's all in there and there's a a whole section of like what I'm thinking about on a daily basis so check that out that's a get, big one well, like what you're thinking. Yeah, people want to know yeah, what I'm a, thinking that's about. That's a big deal. For some reason, they ask me, like, what are you thinking here? I'll, I answer it. That's why I wrote that book. Yeah. Well, like any situation where it's like you're faced with a decision to do this thing and it's hard, but you know it has to be done or should be done or whatever. And there's so many times where you just, when you shift or someone tells you something, hey, look at look at it this way. And, you know, like my dad would always say, do it and it'll be done. Do it and it'll be and done. And it's like, dang, all it took was really thinking a certain way. BC. Compared to your name. BC? Yeah, BC. BC says do it and, and it's it'll done. It'll be done. Yeah, it's true. You get that book from Amazon, from Barnes and Noble. Whatever little bookstore is around you, go and tell them to get it. Or you can sit around and watch life pass you by. It's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> also, extreme ownership. It's still going strong. Why is extreme ownership still going strong? Is it because the massive advertising campaign that we put onto the the uh, New York Times and the Wall Street Journal? No, actually, we didn't do that. You know why it's going strong? Because of word of mouth. That's what it's going strong for. Because one person gets it, they buy it for this person. That person buys it for someone else. That person buys it for their team. That's why we're still selling that thing like crazy. Why and why was it going through word of mouth? Because it works functionally works it's not theoretical it is pragmatic it's functional it'll make you a better better leader and it'll make your team better Mm. period we've seen this over and over and over again that's why it's selling a lot so get yourself and your team so you can implement that and you can win 
then for your business if your business needs some leadership assistance or guidance or wants to improve and wants to go from doing well to doing awesome echelon front that's our leadership consulting me Leif Babin JP Donnell Dave Burke will come put your team into full attack mode you can email info at echelonfront.com now we have the muster coming this is important September 14th and 15th in San Diego I think it's 70 maybe 75 percent sold out at this time in fact the hotel is sold out so we've got rooms at another hotel you'll get it when you register it's a a block or two away so if you want to come it's gonna sell out so register fast you can do that at extremeownership.com while you're waiting for the muster or while you're waiting to see us up in Maine at the origin factory grand opening where we make stuff in America <laughs> while you're waiting for that if you want to link up with us and and maybe just cruise a little bit you can find us we're actually on the interwebs the Twitter the Instagram that Facebooky boy echo is at echo Charles and I am at Jocko Willink I talked about the snapchat last time sure. didn't get around to it yeah I mean I'm going to of course it's coming. Procrastinating. And plus, my, I wasn't around my kids, so they have to instruct me. <laughs> That's cool. That's good. I Humility. wasn't around. Yeah, or Jade Charles, because sure. maybe Jade Charles could instruct me. Yeah, you can probably right. charge you for that, though. So you probably stick with the kids. Yeah, I'll stick with the kids. Or not, whatever. And finally, A, to all the servicemen and women around the world from our military and from our proud allies. Thank you for going forward and protecting our way of life to the firefighters and the police and to the other law enforcement and to EMTs and first responders. Thank you for protecting us here at home. And the rest of you that are out there listening, that are facing challenges of your own, struggling with your own battles. Large and small, whatever those battles might be, fight hard. Keep going. And keep getting after it. So until next time, this is Echo and Jocko.